When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Turin was not an elf. Lucifer means Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The Blood of the Other Hey there, friends, patrons of the arts, and fellow mythical astronomers. It is I, LML, your starry host, back with a B-side to the Stark That Brings the Dawn episode. And this one, as you just heard, is called Eldric Shadow Chaser. Last time, I gave you the background on Michael Moorcock's Elric of Melnibony character, who seems to have been a very large influence on George R.R. R. Martin when he was creating his own characters of Blood Raven, Jon Snow, and the larger Azor High archetype. And today, we're going to follow up on that in a big way. In the last episode, we saw that Eldric Shadow Chaser is the only one of the five names given for the flaming sword hero of the Long Night which doesn't have an obvious origin in the Far East, but that this name does seem to be echoed in the houses of Stark and Dane, the two houses with obvious ties to last hero mythology. After giving a quick rundown of the various members of Stark and Dane with Eldric name variants, we spent the rest of the episode exploring all of that last hero mythology that applies to House Stark and Dane in detail. More than anything, we saw that Stark and Dane are something like the yin and yang of the last hero archetype. Along the way, we dipped our feet into the Tolkien pond to show even more evidence for House Dane being the descendants of the Great Empire of the Dawn, enhancing their connection to Azor High and, in turn, Azor High's connection to Westeros. We explored the strange black Sword of the Morning symbolism, which seems to apply to House Stark in the Night's Watch, and we saw Ned fighting the others at the Tower of Joy with a Shadow Sword crew and stealing another baby in a white sword. I even threw you a little more evidence for the long-speculated existence of a magical black sword made from a meteorite by showing that this very thing is a prominent part of Tolkien's Silmarillion, which is something that George R. R. Martin would have been aware of, being a fan of the Silmarillion as he is. I brought you all that lore from Tolkien and Moorcock's Elric of Milnibony, because I think it's highly relevant background info for understanding what George is doing with his last hero figure and the stolen other baby figure, who are either the same person or two very closely connected people. 
Similarly, we dove into the topic of Danes and Starks and their sort of the morning and evening symbolism because I think it's helpful to get a good grip on that stuff first before we do what we're going to do today. Namely, we're going to do a proper symbolic examination of a fresh crop of characters who represent the stolen other baby turned Stark, beginning with those handful of members of House Stark and House Dane who wear Eldrick-based names, and then continuing with a somewhat surprising inclusion of a familiar well-loved character that we haven't really talked about too much on Mythical Astronomy. One important thing to keep in mind, all of this is really about John. It's also about House Stark as a whole, but John is essentially the focal point of this would-be other-child-turned-Stark archetype, which I sometimes call the Good Other or the Stolen Other Baby or the Stolen Night's Queen Baby. This figure represents the tamed wolf, the wolf trained to guard the flock against the other wolves. He's like the others, but different, and most importantly, he fights for the living. The personal symbolism of this figure includes the ice dragon and dragonglass, or frozen fire, as both of these concepts express the idea of turning a fiery dragon cold. That's what defines the blood of the other, which is the blood of House Stark. John is the epitome of this, with his own half-dragon, half-winter-wolf-made parentage recreating the original mix of bloodlines that created House Stark that of knight's king and queen. So, as we go through all these Eldrick figures and the related stolen other baby figures, we'll be constantly comparing their symbolism to Jon Snow, since that's ultimately what this archetype is all about. Jon is the Stark that brings the dawn, if anyone is, and that's going to involve some white shadow chasing, we can be sure. As you'd expect, we will see Jon's trademark frozen fire and ice and fire unity symbolism with basically every example of this good other archetype. And just as John is about to become a resurrected skin-changer Night's Watchman, what I call a green zombie, and just as we suspect that the original last hero was a green zombie, we're going to run into a fair amount of green zombie and Night's Watch symbolism with our stolen other baby figures. Naturally, nearly all of these figures will be tied to magic swords, both black and white. So in other words, no matter who we're talking about in this episode, I'll be constantly backsliding into talking about Jon Snow and black and white swords, so be forewarned. With all that said, let's hand out some credit, and let's do it in something other than our usual idiom, for variety's sake. We have glorious theme music. That's thanks to Stanley Black. You'll also hear some lovely flamenco guitar. That's courtesy of John Walsh. We have books to talk about. Those are written by George R.R. R. Martin. You know, we always have top-notch vocal acting. Today we have performances by Robert from the Indeep Geek YouTube channel and our own Amethyst Koala. There's a matching text to this podcast available. You can find it at lucifermeanslightbringer.com. In the section breaks, I'll be reading the fantastical nicknames of those kind souls who support mythical astronomy through Patreon. If you want to join the starry host and get a nickname too, click the Patreon tab at lucifermeanslightbringer.com. We'll be having our live stream Q&A one week from the release of this podcast, which will be Saturday, April 7th at 3 o'clock Eastern, 12 o'clock Pacific, and 8 o'clock London time, and that will be on the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel. Robert from Indeep Geek will be my special guest, and we will indeed be geeking it up, so come join us and send in your questions and witty remarks ahead of time if you have the chance. All right, now it's time to chase the shadows back into their corners. Pesky shadows. Portrait of an Eldrick as a Snowman 
This section is brought to you by two new members of the Sacred Order of the Black Hand who have passed the test of bronze stairs, the wise old dragon. Isabeth of House Dustin, Ward Maker and Rune Master of the Barrowlands, and Sir Vorian, the Warg of the Morning, wielder of the dual blades of sunrise. To sort of sum up what we learned last time in the simplest way possible, we can say that House Stark and House Stain both have a ton of Sword of the Morning and Last Hero symbolism, as well as lots of people named Edric and Elric and Ulric. If we take a collective look at the things our various Eldric characters are known for, it both paints a familiar portrait and expands upon that portrait. For most of these Eldric characters, there's actually scant information to go on, but what is there is dripping with import. King Edric Snowbeard Stark and young Edric Dane are the exceptions. We actually have lots of info on Edric Dane, and the Snowbeard thing turns out to be a potent line of symbolism, which will send us hither and yon in search of other escaped other babies. So, we'll start with the historical Starks and Danes that we have less information on, and work our way to Edric Snowbeard and Ned Dane, the Dane named after a Stark. All right, so, in addition to the famous and fabulously named King Edric Snowbeard Stark, there are two other Eldric name variants in House Stark, both of whom lived in the last seven generations. Although there isn't much in the records about Elric Stark and the non-snowbearded Edric Stark, they certainly do occupy interesting places in the family tree, which is like a stone labyrinth and stuff. Anyways, first there's Elric Stark. He had brothers named Brandon and Benjen, just as Eddard does, and that's interesting because Ned is also an Eldric figure, by way of the Danes considering Edric a variant of Eddard. Now, Elric Stark turns out to be the cousin of Cregan Stark, the old man of the north, whose son was Edric Stark, the non-snowbearded one. That Edric also has a brother named Brandon, which, of course, that's hardly remarkable with as many Brandon Starks as there are, but he also had a sister named Lyanna, as Ned does, as well as a more famous brother named Barthagen. That's our boy Barth Blacksword, who later became the Lord of Winterfell. Best of all, the non-snowbearded Edric Stark also had a brother named Jonal One-Eye Stark. I'm sure I don't have to remind you of Jon Snow's one-eye wound from the eagle, which gives him the trademark Odin symbolism. In case that came at you too fast, what I just said was that we have an Elric Stark with a Brandon and a Benjen for brothers, and his second cousin is Edric Stark, whose siblings are Brandon, Lyanna, Barth Blacksword, and Jonal One-Eye. Quite the family there. Given the various titles that contain Blacksword in the Elric of Melnibony series and Tolkien's Silmarillion, it's really not a surprise to see Edric Stark had a brother named Blacksword. Recall that one of Moorcock's Elric stories was actually titled The Blacksword's Brothers, and that Elric of Melnibony had two cousins with Blacksword's of their own. Finding Elric Stark with a Blacksword brother is akin to finding that Edric Shadowchaser and Urkun the Hero are two names for the great flaming sword hero of the Long Night. In other words, Martin is again drawing from Moorcock in such a way as to emphasize the idea of brothers, or cousins, who both wield magic swords. In fact, when we stop and consider that Edric and Elric Stark of the past and Eddard Stark of the present all had brothers named Brandon, and that Edric Stark also had a brother named Blacksword, we have to be thinking about the official legend of Night's King being the brother of Brandon the Breaker who threw him down. But consider this. 
Old Nan implies that Knight's King's name was mayhaps Brandon, and supposedly his brother was Brandon the Breaker. But is it really likely that we'd have a pair of brothers, both named Brandon? I mean, somebody has to be not Brandon, right? Otherwise, it's the Bruce sketch from Monty Python. Good day, Bruce. How are you, Bruce? Hello, Bruce. And then when we look at the family tree, we keep seeing Brandons matched up with Eldrick variants. Brandon and Eldrick. Eldrick and Brandon. Finkel and Einhorn. Einhorn and Finkel. Now, this very thing is highlighted in this quote from A Storm of Swords, where a cat is sitting at Hoster's deathbed and speaking with Jane Westerling. I told Rob I'd give him twins, an Eddard and a Brandon. He liked that, I think. We, we try most every day, my lady, sometimes twice or more. The girl blushed very prettily. I'll be with child soon, I promise. I pray to our mother above every night. Very good. I will add my prayers as well, to the old gods and the new. When the girl had gone, Catelyn turned back to her father and smoothed the thin white hair across his brow. An Eddard and a Brandon, she sighed softly. <sighs> and perhaps in time a hoster. Would you like that? Since we know that Eddard is an Eldrick variant, repeating Eddard and Brandon here is as good as saying Eldrick and Brandon, as we just were. Twins, even. We'll actually get into a hearty analysis of the Eddard and Brandon Stark that we're more familiar with in the next episode, so fear not. We'll talk a bit more about Elric's cousin Barth Blacksword later in this episode as well. Now, getting back to the idea that everyone can't be named Brandon, I have to remember the part of the Night's King legend that says, All record of Night's King had been destroyed, his very name forbidden. And I have to wonder if his name can really have been Brandon, which is like one of the most famous names in Westeros, along with Garth... Aegon, and of course, Pate. Perhaps the name of Knight's King was Eldrick, and perhaps when our Stark rescuer took home the stolen other baby to raise as his son and heir, he might have named it Eldrick after his father, Knight's King. Or perhaps Eldrick is a name going back even further to the original line of Azor Ahai before the fall, which could mean the father or grandfather of Knight's King. Anyways, I hope you see the general point I'm making. This pairing of Brandon and Eldrick names suggests a brother-brother or cousin relationship going back to the original events of the Long Night and House Stark, which makes sense if the Eldrick Shadow Chaser archetype is the same thing as the Stolen Other Baby archetype, as I believe it to be. All right, so taking a look at House Dane now and their Eldrick variants, it's quite notable that one of the few named Swords of the Morning is Ulrich Dane, who of course carried Dawn. That would parallel the idea of the original Eldric Shadow Chaser carrying Dawn, perhaps as the last hero with his dragon steel, which was also known as Original Ice. That quote we cited last time about Ulrich Dane is a bit concerning. If you don't recall, it was Eustace Osgray speaking about the greatness of Damon Blackfire, and he said, When Prince Damon had Blackfire in his hand, there was not a man to equal him, not Ulrich Dane with Dawn, no, nor even the Dragon Knight with Dark Sister. I'd like to think our Eldrick Shadow Chaser is up to the task, so what's up with that? Now, of course, we know the last hero broke his first sword and seems to have suffered some setback before he emerged with Dragonsteel to slay the others after receiving help from the children, and I believe he was even killed and resurrected before being able to win the War for the Dawn. I also think it's possible that Knight's King was the first one to wield original ice, a.k.a. Dawn, with our Eldrick figure perhaps needing to use a black sword to claim it from him, as discussed in our last episode. 
After all, Lord Eddard Stark is a man who owns black ice, and yet briefly claims white ice, if you will. In fact, since Ned was leading a group of grey wraiths with shadow swords against a sword of the morning with a white sword, we can actually see Damon Blackfire and Ned as being placed in parallel positions, both of them having the ability to triumph over a Dane with Dawn. Ned actually defeated Arthur Dane with Dawn, with an assist from Helen Reed, of course. And then we're seeing Damon Blackfire as implied as being able to defeat Ulrich Dane with Dawn. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens with Dawn if it comes out to play in the next two books, and if we see Night's King figure Darkstar Dane possessing Dawn, as I predict we will. Now the main thing to take away is the ever-present black-and-white sword duel. Ulrich Dane, with his white and purple house colors and white sword, versus Damon Blackfire with his black and red house colors and his black sword. Aemon the Dragon Knight is a delightful mingling of their symbolism, being a white sword of the Kingsguard, who carries a black sword, Dark Sister. Uh We'll talk about Aemon the Dragon Knight a bit later, actually, as I think he's another example of our good other figure, mixing fire and ice symbolism. A white shadow Kingsguard with a black dragon sword certainly qualifies there. All right, well, we've served up the appetizers, so... Now it's time for a good old-fashioned snowbearding. And let's start with something dramatic, shall we? Okay, so you remember last time we discussed the possibility that the stolen other baby turned Stark would probably have an affinity for ice magic, and that therefore he may have been the one who was able to build the wall out of ice. Well, it was essentially a logical hunch based on the idea that there might have been this escaped other baby turned Stark who might possess a connection to ice magic, and us needing to find some sort of person who'd be motivated to build a wall to stop the others, but, you know, who could still possess ice magic. So it made sense, and that's a good start, but we really should find some clever hints in the text to support this idea if it's true. And it turns out that King Edric Snowbeard Stark, during his nearly hundred-year rule, was the one who built the great outer wall of Winterfell. That's right. Here we find an Eldric figure, the best one, really, Edric Snowbeard, building a large and significant wall to defend the Northmen against their foes. We've seen Sansa build a snow castle version of Winterfell before, so it's not even that hard to read about Edric Snowbeard building the outer wall of Winterfell and imagine the original Eldric figure building a great wall of ice. Eldric the Builder! Also notable is the fact that Edric Snowbeard ruled for almost a hundred years, which kind of harkens back to the tales of the long-lived kings from the Age of Heroes, thereby encouraging us to view Edric Snowbeard as something of a personification of the heroic Stark archetype. His Snowbeard implies him as one who can use ice magic, or as one whose nature is partially comprised of ice magic. And of course, this is consistent with our idea of the stolen other baby archetype. Again, I will mention that Edric Snowbeard's grandson was named Brandon Ice Eyes Stark, who's another fellow that will come up later in our episode today. That's all pretty great stuff regarding King Edric Snowbeard, but apart from that, there really just isn't a ton written about the man. However, the Snowbeard does seem to be a symbol that Martin is using to say something about the archetype that we've been exploring, as I mentioned at the top. For example... Let's break the ice with this really cool Hodor scene from A Dance with Dragons, which seems to reinforce the idea of Edric Snowbeard as some kind of icy magician. Swaying in his wicker basket on Hodor's back, the boy hunched down, ducking his head as the big stable boy passed under the limb of an oak. The snow was falling again, wet and heavy. 
Hodor walked with one eye frozen shut, his thick brown beard a tangle of hoarfrost, icicles drooping from the ends of his bushy moustache. One gloved hand still clutched the rusty iron longsword he had taken from the crypts below Winterfell, and from time to time he would lash out at a branch, knocking loose a spray of snow. Ho d door he would mutter, his teeth chattering. For those of you who are not hiding from the TV show, you can see some pretty clear foreshadowing in that last line. I'm not going to say it, since there are a few people trying to remain unspoiled. But setting that aside, look at Hodor, with one eye frozen shut to give us an icy version of the famous Odin symbolism, which denotes an open third eye and the ability to use magic. His beard is a tangle of hoarfrost, complete with icicle mustachios, and later in A Dance with Dragons, Hodor's beard becomes solid ice as well, repeating the snowbeard symbolism. Hodor's hoarfrost beard in the scene we quoted actually gives us snowbeard symbolism and, potentially, white dragon symbolism, since Vagar was the hoary old bitch. Now, fabulously, Hodor carries a rusty iron longsword here, meaning a black and red sword, like the two swords made from Ned's black ice. Hodor's black and red sword is from the crypts, so it is specifically a black and red king of winter sword, again, just like the swords made from Ned's sword. Hodor is attacking a snow-covered tree with it, and of course a snow-covered tree is an excellent metaphor for an other, most notably when we see a pale shadow of a weirwood armored in ice in the Vermeer Sixkin's prologue of A Dance with Dragons. The inclusion of the snowbeard symbolism in a scene such as this surely adds to King Edric Snowbeard's mystique, and specifically points us in the direction of a heroic Stark king of winter who can use ice magic. That's our man, right? Those of you who are familiar with the Weirwood Compendium series will recognize the line at the beginning of the last quote about Bran being in the wicker basket as yet more King of Winter symbolism. Hodor himself parallels the wicker basket that carries Bran, as Hodor is sometimes a vessel which carries Bran's consciousness, and this ties the King of Winter symbolism even more directly to Hodor, and implies him as something that can catch on fire, in keeping with the real-world wicker man and King of Winter traditions. Hopefully that is just symbolism, and Hodor won't actually catch on fire. More probably, we are supposed to see him as being filled with the fire of Bran's Greenseer spirit when Bran inhabits his body. There's one other person who specifically has hoarfrost in his beard, and that's the whited version of Small Paul. That again sends us in the direction of zombified Night's Watch brothers, ones who catch on fire, as Small Paul does. Here's that quote. Yet even so, the white's grip did not loosen. Sam's last thoughts were for the mother who had loved him and the father he had failed. The long hall was spinning around him when he saw the wisp of smoke rising from between Paul's broken teeth. Then the dead man's face burst into flame and the hands were gone. Sam sucked in air and rolled feebly away. The white was burning. Hoarfrost dripping from his beard as the flesh beneath blackened. Sam heard the raven shriek, but Paul himself made no sound. When his mouth opened, only flames came out, and his eyes... It's gone. The blue glow is gone. I wanted to pull the quote here because of the dragon symbolism. First, there's smoke rising from between Paul's broken teeth 
with broken teeth looking more like the pointy teeth of a dragon. And then, when his mouth opened, only flame came out, as if he were a fire-breathing dragon. This dragon symbolism, paired with his ice and fire symbolism, his Night's Watchman status, and the hoarfrost beard, which may also imply hoary old Vagar, the symbolic ice dragon, well, it makes him pretty easy to identify. So far, we are two for two, with snowbeard figures matching all of the stolen other baby symbolism. And it's much the same for the heads of the three decapitated rangers that the Weeper mounted on Ashwood spears north of the wall. Their beards were full of ice. These three rangers, Garth Greyfeather, Harry Hal, and Blackjack Bulwer, all have strong green man symbolism, and their bloody carved faces mounted on Ashwood spears creates a kind of grisly weirwood tree symbol, which is more weirwood compendium stuff in case you're not familiar with that. Point being, I believe that our stolen other baby turned Stark was also a green zombie, if indeed he was the last hero, since I'm pretty sure the last hero was a green zombie. That seems to be the message of all these dead Night's Watch rangers with snowy and icy beards, so that checks out. There are also call-outs to magic swords and bleeding stars here. The empty eye sockets of these severed heads are black and bloody holes in the scene where John finds them, while Melisandre foresees this event before it happens, seeing the empty eye sockets weeping blood, followed by a black and bloody tide. All of these are different versions of the blades of Oathkeeper and Widow's Wail, which appear as waves of night and blood. We traced out all this symbolism in Bloodstone Compendium 3, Waves of Night and Moon Blood, and the end result is that the Night's Watchmen's heads mounted on spears are also symbols of meteors, of bleeding stars, with the ashwood spears mimicking the trail of ash and smoke that would follow behind the head of the meteor, and then, of course, the head of the meteor itself is weeping the bloody tide to complete the bleeding star symbolism. Another notable person with a snow-white beard is Sir Barristan, who wears snow-white, hard-as-ice armor with a white dragon helm in A Dance with Dragons. And, of course, the ice dragon symbol seems linked to John and the stolen other baby archetype that he epitomizes. Said another way, Barristan may well be another good other figure, something like Aemon the Dragon Knight, maybe. Next, we have Tormund Giantsbane, who has a snow-white beard, and he is, of course, a hornblower figure with a ton of magical symbolism. Think of the Night's Watch vowing to be the horn that wakes the sleepers, and then recall that Tormund eventually commands one of the castles on the wall, Oakenshield. Tormund's snow-white hair is especially meaningful because it used to be red, kissed-by-fire hair. So that's a fire-to-snow transformation, which again fits John and this eldritch archetype to a T. There's obviously a lot more to say about Tormund, but he's going to feature prominently in our Horn of Winter episode. So let's stick to the Snowbeard theme and keep it moving. Now when the Umbers come down from the last hearth for the harvest feast at Winterfell in A Clash of Kings, there's more Snowbeards and more horn blowing, and it sounds like this. The blast of horns woke him. Bran pushed himself onto his side, grateful for the reprieve. He heard horses and boisterous shouting. More guests have come, and half drunk by the noise of them. Grasping his bars, he pulled himself from the bed and over to the window seat. On their banner was a giant in shattered chains that told him that these were Umber men, down from the Northlands beyond the last river. The next day, two of them came together to audience. 
the great John's uncles, blustery men in the winter of their days, with beards as white as the bearskin cloaks they wore. A crow had once taken moors for dead and pecked out his eye, so he wore a chunk of dragon-glass in its stead. As old Nan told the tale, he'd grabbed the crow in his fist and bitten its head off, so they named him Crow Food. White bearskins come from snow bears, so, by the transitive property of symbolism, these blustery men in the winter of their days effectively have snowbeards. Plus, snow bear is really just snowbeard without the D at the end. Especially notable is the snowbearded guy with the dragon glass eye. What's going on there? Well, I'd say Moore's Crow Food has a bad case of the dragon locked in ice face. It's actually a dragon glass eye locked in a snowbeard. It's very comparable to Hodor with one eye frozen shut, or to Blood Raven, the one eyed, dragon blooded green seer. One eyed, one horn, flying purple people eater, one eyed. Okay. It's also very comparable to John, who is symbolized by a dragon glass, and who has the Odin like one eye wound via Orel's eagle, and whom I predict will have snow white hair himself after he's resurrected. Maybe he'll even grow a beard. Har! And yes, that was a torment, Har. Sorry, not a very good one, but. I'm no torment giant's bane. Not trying to fool anyone there. Interpreting Moore's dragonglass eye with a snowbeard symbolism in the most straightforward fashion would suggest a snowy northerner who can use a dragonglass candle to see, or perhaps fire magic such as Melisandre uses. Now, I'm not sure if that's a thing or not. Maybe that's too specific of an interpretation. But it is safe to say that the combination of dragonglass and snowbeard symbolism is highly consistent with frozen fire being the symbol of the stolen other figure and the Night's Watch. And once again, the one-eye symbol is recognized as a sign of one who has opened their third eye and attained magical sight. Now, I must say, the horn-blowing is really a thing with the Umbers. Not only do they ride in blowing horns and drinking from horns, Moore's crow food also leads a host of green boys to harass the Boltons at Winterfell in a dance with dragons, which they do by blowing horns at all hours of the day. Then we have the horn-blowing at the harvest feast in A Clash of Kings. The music grew wilder, the drummers joined in, and Hotha Umber brought forth a huge curved warhorn banded in silver. When the singer reached the part in The Night That Ended, where the Night's Watch rode forth to meet the others in the Battle for the Dawn, he blew a blast that set all the dogs to barking. And there you have it, the horn that wakes the sleepers to fight the others. We'll follow up on the umbers and compare their horn-blowing symbolism to Tormund when we revisit that topic, but for now I think we can say that all the horn-blowing symbolism relates to the War for the Dawn in some way. We also have to consider the umber sigil, a giant in shattered chains, which surely speaks of the ways in which horn-blowing relates to waking giants in the earth, knocking over ice walls and the like. Moving right along, we have another one-eyed magic user with a snowbeard, and this one is also a skin changer. It's Vermeer Six Skins, of course. And just listen to this. A wave of dizziness washed over Varamir. He found himself upon his knees, his hands buried in a snowdrift. He scooped up a fistful of snow and filled his mouth with it, rubbing it through his beard and against his cracked lips, sucking down the moisture. The water was so cold that he could barely bring himself to swallow and he realized once again how hot he was. 
We can quote the whole prologue of A Dance with Dragons, which is just loaded with symbolism. But I will tell you that right before this quote, Vermeer spends an entire paragraph plotting to perform a body snatching on the wildling spearwife Thistle. This is the blackest sin, according to Vermeer's teacher Hagon, who bonded a wolf named Grayskin, by the way. Then Vermeer rubs snow in his beard and yet feels hot, giving us the requisite ice and fire harmonization symbolism. And right after that, he hobbles over to the weirwood and picks up a fallen weirwood branch as a crutch. I think that's a similar symbol to the Magnar's weirwood spear, or to the High Septon's weirwood staff, or even to Galen Whitestaff of Ironborn Legend, who had a weirwood staff. This would signify some sort of ability, or link to the weirwoods, I have to think, which in the end is similar to the one-eye symbolism, which in A Song of Ice and Fire ultimately refers to the green seers and weirwood magic. Vermeer's weirwood crutch breaks right before he tries to body-snatch Thistle, and this, to me, could represent him defiling his gift by performing this blackest of sins, or perhaps it symbolizes Vermeer's imminent death, where his skin-changer abilities will not prove strong enough. As for Vermeer's one-eyed symbolism, he gets it right after he tries to body-snatch Thistle, fails, and then experiences his spirit flying through the weirwood, through the forest, past Bran and company on the back of the Great Elk, and then finally landing inside one of his bonded wolves. One Eye, of course. Even better, the merged One Eye Vermeer Wolf later gets into a fight with Summer, Bran's dire wolf, when Bran is inside Summer. This seems like yet another depiction of the eternal struggle, with Vermeer, the chilly one eyed wolf representing winter, and Summer, the golden eyed dire wolf with fur the color of silver and smoke, representing summer, of course. The night and blood motif actually makes an appearance at the scene of that battle, the clearing with the eviscerated bodies of the Night's Watch mutineers. It comes in the form of a frozen puddle of red and black blood. Red and black blood ice, in other words, which is a really strong call-out to the swords made from Ned's black ice, which now have blades with waves of night and blood. You may also remember that Ned has a very famous habit of dipping his bloody ice sword into the black pond, the cold black pond, at the Winterfell Godswood, which creates another parallel to this pool of frozen blood. Now I continue to point out symbols of Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale because, even split in half and slapped with those ugly golden lion's head pommels, these are the swords of the King of Winter, who tend to run with morning light. And you better believe our stolen other baby, Eldrick Shadow Chaser, is a King of Winter figure. And moving right along, we have old Hoster Tully, whose hair and beard had been brown, well streaked with gray. Now they had gone white as snow. So it's another snow beard. Here's the operative quote about Hoster Tully from a Catlin chapter of A Clash of Kings. Lightly she kissed his hand. The skin was warm, blue veins branching like rivers beneath his pale, translucent skin. Outside, the greater rivers flowed, the red fork and the tumblestone, and they would flow forever, but not so the rivers in her father's hand. Too soon that current would grow still. The three forks of the River Trident are, from north to south, the Green Fork, the Blue Fork, and the Red Fork. Most people I know tend to see these as representing the three branches of magic, Green Seer magic, Ice magic, and Fire magic. River Run sits at the junction of the Red Fork and the Tumblestone River, which is even easier to interpret. The Red Fork would symbolize a river of blood, and a tumbling stone is a meteor, 
So the message here is of a river of bleeding stones. We know what that's about, right? The river of bleeding stones, which is, of course, the moon meteor shower, is indeed where fire magic comes from, sure enough. Now, the signature Tully look, however, passed on to Rob, Sansa, and Bran, is actually a merging of ice and fire, red kissed by fire hair, and blue eyes. It's the same with Hoster Tully's blue veins being compared to the Red Fork River outside. It's an ice and fire unity, or we might even say it's showing a fire-to-ice transformation. Hoster's pale skin is veined with blue, like all the chilly white marble at ice moon locations that we've seen, and yet it's warm to the touch as he's dying and has a fever. Finally, I'll add that the Tully funeral rites involve drowning in the river and burning, so basically everything about the Tully symbolism, right down to their red, silver, and blue sigil, reflects a blend of ice and fire. They've even got a blackfish with an obsidian fish for a cape clasp. He lives in the Erie, too, so he's a dragonglass blackfish locked in ice. Lord Dennis Malister of the Night's Watch has a beard as white as snow. He's the commander of the Shadow Tower, and he's got blue-gray eyes. Now, the idea of a snow-bearded Night's Watchman is certainly familiar to us. We can say that much. The main thing I associate with House Malister and their eagle is that they seem to play the part of the eagle in the Prometheus myth, the one who eats Prometheus anew every day. The Malisters are basically dedicated to opposing and battling the Ironborn, and of course the hero of the Ironborn is a Promethean figure known as the Grey King. So you've got the Fire Stealer and the Eagle set to oppose one another for all time. This is made more evident by the fact that Dennis Malister ends up in a fierce competition with Cotter Pike of the Iron Islands to be the next Lord Commander. We also see the Eagle and Prometheus myth acted out when Jon Snow is attacked by Orel's eagle. Jon turned at the sudden sound of wings. Blue-gray feathers filled his eyes as sharp talons buried themselves in his face. Red pain lanced through him, sudden and fierce as pinions beat around his head. He saw the beak, but there was no time to get a hand up or reach for a weapon. John reeled backwards, his foot lost the stirrup, his garron broke in panic, and then he was falling. And still, the eagle clung to his face, its talons tearing at him as it flapped and shrieked and pecked. The world turned upside down in a chaos of feathers and horseflesh and blood, and then the ground came up to smash him. The blue-gray eagle is a match for the eagle of House Malister and the blue-gray eyes of Lord Denny's. And John is, of course, the Prometheus figure. The eagle is doing a fairly good job of eating John here, which makes the myth come to life. So what does this mean? Well, the blue-gray eagle symbolism seems to belong to the same family as icy comets or ice moon meteors, and to the others and the white swords and all the rest. The flaming swords wielded by Brienne and Jamie in Jamie's Weirwood Stump Dream, for example, are described as burning with either pale flame or silvery blue flame, depending on the passage. So in terms of Lord Dennis, we can see him as a man with icy other-like symbolism who serves the Night's Watch with distinction. And a snowbeard. This is very basic, recognizable, good other symbolism at the end of the day. Think of him as analogous to cold hands, more or less. And though the eagle is actually attacking John here, what it's doing symbolically is representing the opening of John's third eye, just as when we saw the three-eyed crow peck Bran's forehead to open his third eye. That's almost like John, or the frozen other baby archetype, really, awakening to the powers of ice magic in his blood via magical transformation. 
That's something that would have had to happen at some point if our stolen other baby slash eldritch slash good other figure used ice magic to build the wall. And so many of our snowbeard figures that we've looked at so far show clues about being able to use ice magic or weirwood magic, or they show a combination of weirwood symbolism and ice magic symbolism. The next snowbeard is Grandmaster Pycelle, whom I'll admit I don't really have anything for at the moment. Feel free to chime in if you've got any ideas. But then there's this guy at the Kingsmoot, Eric Ironmaker, who is one L short of being Elric Ironmaker. Me, a deep voice boomed, and once more the crowd parted. The speaker was borne up the hill in a carved driftwood chair carried on the shoulders of his grandsons, a great ruin of a man. Twenty stones heavy and ninety years old, he was cloaked in a white bearskin. His own hair was snow-white as well, and his huge beard covered him like a blanket from cheeks to thighs, so it was hard to tell where the beard ended and the pelt began. Well, there's the snowbeard and snow bear skin paired again, as with one-eyed Morris Crowfoot and his brother. And once again, I'd say the symbolism here serves a similar purpose of implying the archetype as an ice magic user. The driftwood chair reads like a stand-in for a weirwood throne, especially considering the implication of Grey King having had a weirwood throne. The other driftwood throne that we hear of is on the Isle of Driftmark, supposedly given by the Merlin King to the first Valerion, and again, all the symbolism of House Valerion is about blood of the dragon people becoming green seers. One other note on Elric Ironmaker. Euron marries him to Asha in absentia, so now he's a moon maiden stealer. And of course, with a name like Ironmaker, you know his weapon of choice is a huge warhammer, which it is. Finally, his booming voice reminds us of the fact that Sir Dennis Malister was born beneath the booming tower at Seaguard, and Tormund's voice booms when he hugs Jon Snow one time. Okay, well, forgive me if I indulged a bit on the snowbeard symbolism. I just love Edric Snowbeard, and Morris Crowfood and Eric Ironmaker are two of my favorite bit characters. To be honest, the King Edric Snowbeard section was originally only two paragraphs, but once I started looking at all the characters with snowbeards and saw that they all fit the archetype, I figured I'd be holding out on you guys if I didn't include all that. And I'd never hold out on you guys. You all know that. All right, so far, our look at the historical Edrics, Elrics, and Ulrics of House Dane and Stark has built the following composite picture. Our Eldric figure commands ice magic, which we can think of as frozen dragon magic, he built the wall, probably using that ice magic. He wields either Dawn, the original ice, or a black sword, black ice. He's got a snowy beard. <laughs> he seems to be a skin changer or green seer. And he surely has a brother named Brandon, probably a father or uncle too. That's a good start, but let's speak of the living and focus a bit more closely on Edric Ned Dane for a moment who seems like something of an immaculate conception of raw symbolic need and intent. Milk Brother from an Other Mother This section is brought to you by the Patreon support of three new members of the Priesthood of Starry Wisdom. Lady Dane, the Twilight Star, the Born Mouth, daughter of Frost Giants, and official secret keeper of Starry Wisdom. The Bloody Tide, Lord of the Greenblood and Merling Slayer of the Seven Seas. And Stephen Stark, Jedi of Just Ice, the Winter Warrior. 
Edric Ned Dane is really quite the fellow, as I like to say. He isn't technically rescued or abducted from his parents, at least not in the dramatic put-his-face-on-a-milk-carton sense. However, at age seven, he was sent to Squire with one Beric Dondarrion when his aunt Illyria was betrothed to Beric. This means that, like our other stolen other babies, Ned is growing up with a different family than his natural one. It also means that Beric would have become Ned's uncle. Taking Ned as his squire also places Beric in something of a father figure role to young Ned, which reminds us immediately of the general idea that Azor High, Knight's King, and the Last Hero may be separate people who descend from one another. Beric, who took Ned away from his real family and becomes like a new father, would be Ned Dane's rescuer figure, and it's not hard to see Beric in that role, what with his flaming sword and symbolic weirwood affiliations. To wit, Beric is implied as an undead green seer version of the flaming sword hero, much as John may become. Beric is a burning straw man figure, a king of winter, in other words, drawing on the real world King of Winter Wickerman legend, who parallels the burning scarecrow brothers in John's Azor High dream. All of this implies Beric as being aligned with the Watch and Jon Snow and the Green Seers and the King of Winter. And indeed, Beric was sent out on his original mission by none other than Ned Stark. Now, Edric Dane may be a bit young to carry Dawn yet. It is a great sword, after all. They're kind of big and heavy. But squiring for Beric is probably good practice. Now, I hope you thought it was cool that Beric was almost Edric Dane's uncle. Because if so, you're going to think it's even cooler when you stop to realize that Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, was also Edric Dane's uncle. How's that for having cool uncles? Arthur Dane died before Ned was born, but it can't be a coincidence that Edric Dane, of all people, the Dane named after a Stark, has two magic sword heroes for uncles. One of them is an undead Azor High type with a flaming sword, and the other dresses up in snow-white otherish armor and carries around a glowing sword as pale as milk glass that, again, reminds us of the swords and symbolism of the others. That's not the kind of stuff that I call coincidence. I don't know about you. Edric Dane, squiring for his rescuer figure, Beric, actually compares very well to another rescued Night's Queen baby, Theon, acting as Ned Squire. Theon notably serves up ice to Ned, when he beheads Garrod in the first chapter of A Game of Thrones, and that's important because it's the role that Theon is first presented to us in, a stolen child who is Ned Squire. Now, as for Edric Dane having Arthur Dane and Beric for uncles, well, that compares very well to Jon Snow, most significant of all Night's Queen babies, whose uncle is, of course, our beloved Ned. Think about it this way. Edric Dane has two magic sword uncles, one with a white ice sword, and one with a fire sword, but John's uncle Ned combines both ideas, having taken Dawn from Arthur Dane, and I can certainly see Ned's Valerian steel ice correlating to Beric's flaming sword, because remember, Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale have cross guards which flame gold, and all Valerian steel is forged in dragonfire. It's probably also worth mentioning that John has an aunt who has a huge black dragon, and that's perhaps important for symbolism as well. John also squires for somebody important, the old bear, Jor Mormont, who is the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. John is also implied as an honorary son to the Lord Commander when Mormont gives him his family sword, Longclaw, which would have gone to his actual son, Jorah, had he not dishonored himself. In the sense that the legend says Night's King was a man who led the Watch, though we question that, obviously, the stolen Night's King baby would be the son of a Lord Commander just like John is Mormont's adopted son. 
Mormont, leading the Watch, also compares well to Beric, leading the Brotherhood Without Banners, or to Ned, leading his gray shadow wraiths with shadow swords at the Tower of Joy. All of these heroic figures have stolen other babies as squires and nephews, and all follow the old gods in some sense. Ned and Lord Commander Mormont worship the old gods, and Beric is implied as a green seer by his weirwood throne and weirwood cave. It's possible I should have pointed this out already, but if Knight's King was the brother of Brandon the Breaker Stark, and if Brandon the Breaker was the last hero who stole the baby from Knight's King and Queen, which is one possible scenario, then Brandon the Breaker would have been rescuing his own nephew, just as Ned was at the Tower of Joy. Heck, it's even possible that Knight's Queen herself could have been related to the Starks or the Azora High people, but that's another question entirely. Returning to Edric Dane in particular, let's talk about his physical description, which is certainly interesting. Ned had big blue eyes, so dark that they looked almost purple, and his hair was a pale blonde, more ash than honey. Ash blonde hair basically looks like very desaturated gold hair, meaning that it's a bit paler, almost silvery tan looking. By way of comparison to other Targaryens, Ned Dane is actually a great match for Egg from the Duncan Egg stories, who is Aegon the Fourth Targaryen. The first description of Egg from the Hedge Knight sounds like this. He had blue eyes, Dunk saw, very dark, almost purple. His bald head made them seem huge somehow. So on one hand, Ned has big blue eyes, so dark they looked almost purple, while Egg has huge blue eyes, which were very dark, almost purple. This next description of Egg is from the Sworn Sword. Egg had big eyes, and somehow his shaven head made them look even larger. In the dimness of the lamplit cellar they looked black, but in better light their true colour could be seen, deep and dark and purple. Valyrian eyes, thought Dunk. In Westeros, few but the blood of the dragon had eyes that colour, or hair that shone like beaten gold and strands of silver woven all together. We also find more or less this exact same eye coloration in the eyes of young Griff, a.k.a. Fake Aegon VI, a.k.a. Fagon Blackfire, who has eyes which are dark blue in daylight, purple by the light of dusk, and black in lamplight. There are also a few Targaryens who have some degree of blueness to their eyes, such as Valar Targaryen, who has cool blue eyes, while Rhaegars are also called Indigo, which is, of course, a dark blue-purple. It's also worth mentioning the people of Lys, or Lys, however you prefer to say that. I'm really not sure which is right. Because in the World of Ice and Fire, it says that the blood of Valyria still runs strong in Lys, where even the small folk oft boast pale skin, silver-gold hair, and the purple, lilac, and pale blue eyes of the dragon lords of old. So there you go. In other words, the hypothetical latent dragon lord genes of House Dane seem to have come through pretty strong in the person of young Ned. Our Dane named after a Stark also bears the hallmarks of the dragon lords. If he walked into the Red Keep in the heyday of House Targaryen, he'd fit right in. However, look again. Blue eyes and pale hair effectively bends his Dane Dragonlord looks to resembling an other. Of course, the idea of a Dragonlord who looks a bit otherish fits the rescued other baby archetype to a T. This is just like John being the good other, a snow and ice-affiliated blood-of-the-dragon person. 
Needless to say, the correlation between House Dane's pale sword and white star symbolism and the symbolism of the others as cold falling star beings with pale swords is well established, so anyone from House Dane would be predisposed to icy other symbolism anyway, even if they didn't join the sacred order of white shadow knights known as the Kingsguard, as Arthur Dane does. Ned Dane also does have more specific icy symbolism applied to him, though. One thing he tells Arya about himself is that he had the same wet nurse at Starfall, Willa, that Jon Snow had when Ned stopped by Starfall with baby Jon after the Tower of Joy. This relationship is expressed by Edric as Jon being his milk brother. That's pretty cool because it draws a direct comparison between Edric and Jon, and placing them at the same teat and calling them brothers after a fashion makes them both Ice Moon children. I think it's safe to think about Willa as an Ice Moon maiden for two reasons. First, the name Willa seems like just another variant on the Lyanna, Lya, Lysa, Alyssa, Alanis, etc. name tree. And second, Willa is actually the cover story for Jon Snow's parentage lie. That's right. Ned tells Robert that Jon Snow's mother is named Willa way back in A Game of Thrones, and when Ned Dane mentions Willa while telling his Me and John are Milk Brothers story, Arya asks him who Willa is, and he says, Jon Snow's mother. He never told you? She served us for years and years, since before I was born. In other words, if Edric and John are Milk Brothers, the milk they're drinking is definitely the Ice Moon kind. Milk Brothers also sounds like others talk, since the others are effectively a brotherhood of beings with milk-white skin and bones like milk glass. According to my theory, the others would indeed be the brothers of the stolen other baby in a very real sense, just as the others are referred to as monsters brothers. And therefore, you can also see the others as the long-lost brothers of all of House Stark, with John essentially being the focal point of that symbolism. Or, as Emilio Camacho Aris from YouTube put it, the stolen other baby and the others are brothers from an other mother. I'm a little embarrassed I didn't think of that one last time, but... Emilio had my back, so we're all good. Thanks, Emilio. The role of the rescued other baby is indeed that of milk brother to the others. As a final comparison between Edric Dane and John, I will again point out that Beric's Brotherhood Without Banners seems to be a symbolic stand-in for the Night's Watch. The Brotherhood emerging from the Weirwood Cave and seeking guidance from a Weirwood goddess inside a Weirwood Grove at the High Heart correlates pretty much perfectly to the origins of the Night's Watch being tied to the children of the forest, the Night's Watch saying their vows before heart trees, and to my green zombie Night's Watchman theory, which would entail the dead companions of the last hero being resurrected through weirwood magic to become other killing zombies, most likely in front of heart trees. Beric leads his band with a flaming sword, while the Lord Commanders of the Night's Watch occasionally possess Valerian steel, and I'm thinking of Mormont, John, and probably Bloodraven if he took Dark Sister with him to the Wall. And then, of course, John dreams of defending the Wall with a burning red sword, surrounded by burning Scarecrow brothers, who correlate perfectly to Beric, a Scarecrow knight animated by a fire. In other words, Edric Dane joining the Brotherhood under Beric is very comparable to John joining the Night's Watch. That's the point. Jon Snow also seems to basically combine the symbolism of Edric Dane's two uncles even more than Ned does, since Jon has a Valyrian steel sword with a pale stone pommel, which burns red in his dream and runs with morning light twice in real life. I know, it's a lot of symbolism. Of course, Beric's firewhite status seems likely to be a foreshadowing of Jon's resurrected status. 
Edric Dane has apparently left the Brotherhood Without Banners after Beric passed on his flame of life to Stoneheart, which makes sense since he was Beric's squire. He probably returned home to Starfall, though we don't know that for certain, and I think all of this might correlate to John leaving the Night's Watch to return to Winterfell after he's resurrected. We'll have to see what Ned Dane is up to and where he turns up in the Winds of Winter, and I'd expect everything he does to drip with symbolic import. I'd really love to see him take part in slaying Darkstar and taking back Dawn, if indeed that's a plot line that is going to happen. There's one more living Edric in the story, of course, though he's neither Stark nor Dane, and that's Edric Storm, the bastard son of Robert Baratheon. Edric Storm is famously smuggled away from Stannis and Melisandre and a fate involving blood magic and human sacrifice by Davos, Maester Pylos, and a few others. Although Edric is Stannis's nephew instead of his son, and also not a baby, it's still a pretty strong echo of the main idea of stealing a child from Night's King and Queen before it could be used in a magical ritual. As we know, Stannis is a Night's King figure, and Mel is a kind of temperature-inverted Night's Queen in some respects, and they want to sacrifice Edric to wake a dragon from stone, which is kind of the fire equivalent to sacrificing a baby to make an other, however that works. Davos, playing the rescuer role like Samwell, Ned, or Beric, smuggles Edric Storm away to save him from his fate, a great parallel to Gilly's monster and even John, because the whole reason Lyanna made Ned swear to hide John's Targaryen bloodline was to keep him safe from Robert, who at the time was trying to exterminate House Targaryen. Edric's parents are Stannis's brother King Robert and Delana Florent, and you'll recall from our discussion of Selyse Florent that House Florence sigil has that ring of twelve blue flowers, which reminds us so much of Lyanna's crown of blue winter roses. That's what you call a home run for symbolism. Any Florent maiden can be a good Night's Queen figure due to their sigil, and that makes Edric a blue-eyed Son of the Night's Queen figure. For that matter, Robert can be viewed as a usurper king, which is the defining role of the Bloodstone Emperor and Night's King as well. Therefore, when Davos smuggles Edric Storm away from a different set of Night's King and Queen figures, Stannis and Mel, to save Edric's life, it sure seems like another match for the stolen other baby theory. The origins of House Baratheon actually shouldn't be overlooked here because they are tied to a marriage between the blood of the dragon and the blood of the first men, or at least rumored blood of the dragon. During Aegon's conquest, Ori's Baratheon, a suspected bastard brother of Aegon, married into the House of Durandon, the fabled line of Storm Kings, by taking to wife the daughter of the last Storm King, Argella Durandon. Argella's the daughter, not the last Storm King. House Baratheon, in the time since then, has had two intermarriages with House Targaryen, the most recent of which involved Robert's Targaryen grandmother. So in a roundabout way, this expresses the same symbolism of Stark and Dane, a union of the blood of the dragon and the blood of the first men. I guess it also makes Edric Storm something like 116th Targaryen, for what it's worth. Now, although Edric is being rescued from Stannis and not by Stannis, it's noteworthy that Edric Storm does have a flaming sword guy for an uncle, just like Edric Dane has a flaming sword guy for an almost uncle and a sword of the morning for a real uncle, and just like Ned is John's uncle, and so on. If we can ever find Thoros's nephew, I'm sure he'll have stolen other baby symbolism as well. Now, if you stop and think about it, the simple fact that Martin has repeated this son of knights, king, and queen symbolism and stolen other baby symbolism with Edric Storm is quite telling. 
Finding five different Eldritch name variants among Stark and Dane makes a ton of sense, as these houses already fit the last hero and Night's King mythology, as we've seen. Edric Storm, however, isn't a Stark or Dane, but his name is one letter away from Eldritch Shadow Chaser's first name. That's a really strong clue that the Eldritch Shadow Chaser name itself is tied to the Son of Night's Queen figure. In fact, Edric Storm's name is even more closely connected to Elric of Melnibony, because Elric of Melnibony can also be named after his sword, and is sometimes referred to as Elric Stormbringer. Elric Stormbringer? Edric Storm. It's pretty close. There's a funny passage about Edric's name which highlights his stormy nature in, appropriately, A Storm of Swords. You are making me angry, Davos. I will hear no more of this bastard boy. His name is Edric Storm, sire. I know his name. Was there ever a name so apt? It proclaims his bastardy, his high birth, and the turmoil he brings with it. Edric Storm. There, I have said it. Are you satisfied, my lord Hand? Edric, he started, is one boy. He may be the best boy who ever drew breath, and it would not matter. My duty is to the realm. He may be the best boy who ever drew breath. Why? Because he has the blood of the Melnobonians in his veins, the blood of fallen Numenor, the blood of the Dunedain, the blood of the dragon, and the blood of the other. And Stannis wants to kill him, stupid Stannis. It's actually a very Night's King thing to do, of course. Don't at me, Brendan Beefish. At the risk of stating the obvious, it's important to realize that Edric Storm, as a symbolic smuggled Night's Queen baby, is analogous to Jon Snow. Jon, like Edric Storm, is a kind of royal bastard raised with the so-called legitimate offspring, and for what it's worth, Jon and Edric's last names combine to make Snowstorm. That may be more than a joke, though, because we saw the idea of the Edric figure being someone who could wield ice against the others, with Edric Snowbeard building the outer wall of Winterfell, and with all the other Snowbeard figures who seem to show us Greenseer and one-eyed sorcerer symbolism. In general terms, when we see the idea of a heroic figure wielding ice against the others, we should think of the Watch using frozen fire to kill the others, of Cold Hands, a cold white playing on Team Living, and of course we should think of John defending the wall, armored in black ice with a burning red sword. I'm not sure if this is intentional or not, but a humorous parallel to Gilly's monster, the actual stolen other baby, is created when Edric Storm meets Davos on Dragonstone in the garden and explains that, We were playing monsters and maidens. I was the monster. Cold Hands is labeled a monster by Bran. He even says, Your monster, Brandon Stark, as a way of saying, At your service. Most importantly, John is going to be similar to Cold Hands in that he'll be a resurrected Night's Watchman, and whether John is a Fire White or an Ice White or some strange combination, he will be a monster too, a dead thing. In this, I think he will be echoing the last hero, who would have been the original monster. There's a fun link between Edric Dane and Edric Storm involving catching a cold, and this find comes to us courtesy of a good friend and collaborator, Unchained. Thanks, Unchained. When Davos returns to Dragonstone in A Storm of Swords, Stannis tells him that Edric Storm is sick and that Maester Pylos has been leeching him. After Davos says that he hopes Edric will recover soon... Stannis waved a hand, dismissing his concern. It is a chill, no more. He coughs, he shivers, he has a fever. Maester Pylos will soon set him right. By himself, the boy is naught, you understand. 
but in his veins flows my brother's blood. There is power in a king's blood, she says. Interesting that the potential magical power of Edric's blood is remarked upon here in the same quote about him being sick. In particular, he's got an ice and fire thing happening. He both shivers and has a fever. It's that special ice and fire blood. It's potent. It's the same for Edric Dane, actually, when he catches sick after getting rained on at the high heart. It rained all through that night, and come morning, Ned, Lem, and Watty the Miller awoke with chills. Watty could not keep his breakfast down, and young Ned was feverish and shivering by turns, with skin clammy to the touch. From very hot to very cold by turns. Once again, the ice and fire theme is depicted. This whole bit is the sort of needless detail that seems obviously injected for symbolism. There's really nothing gained in the plot by Edric Storm catching this nasty fever chill. Now, you could argue that Edric Storm catching cold gives him an excuse to be leeched, but Mel could have done that anyway, I would think. You may also recall the snow-bearded and blue-veined Hoster Tully, whose skin was yet warm to the touch with fever. So if our Edric's catching fever chills is meaningful, what does it mean? Well, probably it's just a general clue about this archetype being an ice-and-fire character as John is. More specifically, it would seem to compare to John going through a death transformation, growing hard and cold at the wall, as Bran sees him. And this, of course, alludes to John dying and being resurrected, quite possibly as a conscious cold-white like cold hands, or maybe even as a fire-white. We'll have to see. In the scenario that the rescued Night's Queen baby grows up to become the last hero then the green zombie theory would suggest that he did indeed become zombified and whited, of course, which, as we've seen, is tantamount to being turned into a monster, just as Edric Storm plays the monster. All right, well, that does it for our Eldric Shadow Chaser section, but we aren't done with the archetype. I'm not sure if we'll ever see Edric Storm again. I'd like to think that we will. But I am pretty sure that we will be seeing more from Edric Dane, Jon Snow's milk brother. If Edric Storm ever does show up, he and Gendry might end up as the best candidates to continue the line of House Baratheon, so we'll have to keep our eye on that. Davos Shadow Chaser This section is sponsored by three of our stalwart Zodiac patrons. The Child of the Forest, known as Feathercrow, the Weircat Dryad, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Capricorn, Searing Abyss, Tavern Keep of the Wine Spring Inn, Server of Crow Food and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Cancer, and Blue Raven of the Lightning Peck, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Gemini, whose words are, The Way Must Be Tried. Davos what now? Yeah, that's right. It's Davos time. Now, I hate to do this to you, but I have to tell you that Eldritch Shadow Chaser may be an inherited title, just as Azor Ahai may be. I mean, we've been kind of beating around that bush as it is, but I wanted to say it flat out. I know it would be nice to pin everything down, all neat and clean, but time and time again, no matter the archetype, we see that father and son often repeat the same symbolism. For example, in the very chapter that Davos plays the rescuer role, smuggling Ice Queen baby Edric Storm away to safety, Davos himself is also suggested to us as an Eldric Shadow Chaser figure. Then, in A Dance with Dragons, Davos's son, Devon, is implied as an Eldric Shadow Chaser figure too, and in the exact same way that Davos was. It's an Eldric Shadow Chaser Russian doll trick. Eldricception. 
All right, well, first things first. Let me show you what I mean, starting with a passage that establishes Davos as a shadow chaser. I'm going to quote the paragraph before and after the key line because they're written beautifully and they contain a few other clues about what's going on here. Davos is returning to the chamber of the painted table to await Stannis' judgment after smuggling Edric away and take note of the Morning Star language here. The steps seemed longer and steeper than before, or perhaps it was just that he was tired. The mother never made me for tasks like this. He had risen too high and too fast, and up here on the mountain the air was too thin for him to breathe. As a boy, he'd dreamed of riches, but that was long ago. Later, grown, all he had wanted was a few acres of good land, a hall to grow old in, a better life for his sons. The blind bastard used to tell him that a clever smuggler did not overreach, nor draw too much attention to himself. A few acres, a timbered roof, a sir before my name. I should have been content. If he survived this night, he would take Devon and sail home to Cape Roth and his gentle Maya. We will grieve together for our dead sons, raise the living ones to be good men, and speak no more of kings. The chamber of the painted table was dark and empty when Davos entered. The king would still be at the night fire with Melisandre and the queen's men. He knelt and made a fire in the hearth to drive the chill from the round chamber and chase the shadows back into their corners. Then he went round the room to each window in turn, opening the heavy velvet curtains and unlatching the wooden shutters. The wind came in, strong with the smell of salt and sea, and pulled at his plain brown cloak. So there's the shadow chaser line. Davos is chasing the shadows into their corners with fire. In the first paragraph, he's spelled out as a morning star figure, one who reaches too high and then has a great fall, just like the classic Lucifer or Prometheus. This language implies Davos as an Azora high figure reaching for the fire of the gods, and now we see him using fire to chase the shadows. At the same time, he's also using fire to drive the cold from the room, which kind of implies the shadows as cold ones, and of course that makes sense. The scene continues with Davos looking to the stars. At the north window, he leaned against the sill for a breath of the cold night air, hoping to catch a glimpse of Mad Prindos raising sail, but the sea seemed black and empty as far as the eye could see. Is she gone already? He could only pray that she was and the boy with her, a half-moon was sliding in and out amongst the thin high clouds, and Davos could see familiar stars. There was the galley sailing west. There the chrome's lantern, four bright stars that enclosed a golden haze. The clouds hid most of the ice dragon, all but the bright blue eye that marked due north. The sky is full of smuggler stars. They were old friends, these stars. Davos hoped that meant good luck. Okay, so going back, Mad Prendos is the ship carrying Edric Storm to safety. Prendo is a word found in both Latin and Spanish, which means something along the lines of captivate, capture, to grasp, or take hold of, etc. So Mad Prendos, therefore, is kind of like Mad Collector or Mad Capturer, or even Mad Smuggler, if you will, which fits the drama play perfectly. This probably refers to characters like the Mad Huntsman, or Cold Hands, who helps Sam and Gilly rescue Baby Monster, 
or even the thing that came in the night who captures the Prentice boys. Davos himself, more importantly, is a mad collector by way of his being a career smuggler and pirate, and he even remarks on the fact that what he's done to save Edric Storm may result in him not surviving the night. Essentially, Mad Prendos, the smuggler ship, is an extension of Davos, the smuggler. Next, Davos breathes in the cold night air and looks to the northern stars for reassurance. These are apparently smuggler stars and old friends to Davos' shadow chaser, the quintessential smuggler. He sees the galley sailing west, just like Mad Prendos is, which basically makes this celestial galley a mirror image of Mad Prendos, and thus Davos. The crone's lantern is sacred to Davos, who is a faithful adherent to the Seven, who was taught to pray to the crone for wisdom as a boy. It goes without saying that the standout constellation here is the Ice Dragon. The idea of Davos and the Ice Dragon being old friends fits very well with our idea of the Eldritch Shadow Chaser archetype as a frozen dragon or ice dragon figure. I can't imagine that it's an accident that George has Davos label the Northern Stars as the smuggler stars and old friends, given that this is his shadow chaser scene. However, taken in context with Davos having just used fire to chase the shadows and drive the chill from the room, it seems almost paradoxical to see him then let in the cold night air and revel in the sight of the ice dragon. But if Eldrick Shadow Chaser was a frozen dragon slash ice dragon figure who fights the others which is what he seems to be, according to all the symbolism that we've seen in the last two episodes, then it actually makes perfect sense to see the Shadow Chaser figure allied with the Ice Dragon, but yet chasing cold shadows with fire. I think John's Azor High Dream is actually super instructive here. In that dream, John defends the wall, armored in black ice and wielding a sword that burns red, which John identifies as Longclaw, a Valyrian steel sword. John's an icy fellow with icy armor, but he's got a black sword that burns red. And that's an ice and fire harmonization, of course, which fits the Eldric slash stolen other baby archetype. His foes scuttle up the ice like spiders and need to be killed again, implying both ice spiders and the army of the undead coming from the north, and implying John being the one to meet them. So perhaps we can see Davos' shadow chaser implied along the same lines, an icy or ice dragon figure with a black sword who fights the others with fire. Ah, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Yes, Davos does indeed have a black sword in this scene, and it's one we've seen before. But when he lowered his gaze from the sky to the castle ramparts, he was not so certain. The wings of the stone dragons cast great black shadows in the light from the night fire. He tried to tell himself that they were no more than carvings, cold and lifeless. This was their place once, a place of dragons and dragon lords, the seat of House Targaryen. The Targaryens with the blood of old Valyria. The wind sighed through the chamber, and in the hearth the flames gusted and swirled. He listened to the logs crackle and spit. When Davos left the window, his shadow went before him, tall and thin, and fell across the painted table like a sword. As much as Davos fears these cold and lifeless stone dragons, which he refers to as frozen dragons earlier in the chapter while smuggling Edric Storm off the island, consider the symbolism of what's happening here. Davos and the frozen black stone dragons are doing the exact same thing. They're both casting black shadows in the light of a night fire, with Davos even having lit the fire in the chamber of the painted table himself. 
Similarly, Davos is fearful and reluctant about the whole shadow baby thing. But nevertheless, Davos did enable the birth of the shadow baby beneath Storm's End, rowing Melisandre into the cave under the cover of night, which basically nobody else could have done. He was practically the midwife. Fittingly, the shadow sword that Davos casts over Westeros here is a direct call-out to the shadow sword of the shadow baby in Renly's tent, which, as we know, carried something referred to as a shadow sword. It's also a match for the shadow swords carried by Ned's gray wraiths at the Tower of Joy. And, of course, all of this shadow sword business refers to smoke-dark Valyrian steel swords, dragonglass, and, most importantly, to the Night's Watch, who are themselves black shadows and swords in the darkness. Like the Watch and the Shadow Babies with Burning Hearts, Davos pairs his shadow sword with the use of fire as a weapon, because he's using fire to drive the shadows back. And again, this is like John being armored in black ice with his black sword burning red. Ergo, I think we should see Davos here in the mold of the Eldritch Shadow Chaser archetype, using Valyrian steel or dragon glass against the cold shadows, the others. Davos does end up convincing Stannis to go north to help the Night's Watch, after all, and when we last saw him, he was even being sent to rescue a Stark child, Rickon. Armed with his shadow sword and a bit of fire and ready to chase the shadows, Davos is basically like an honorary Night's Watchman or an honorary Stark, a match for our other rescuer figures. There's Ned, a Stark, Sam, a Night's Watchman, Theon, who calls himself a Stark at last, right before he rescues Jane, posing as Arya. There's Beric, who parallels both Bloodraven and the fiery Scarecrow brother Night's Watchman, and whose Brotherhood Without Banners parallels the Night's Watch, and who captures and rescues Arya, a Stark child. And now that I think about it, Beric and Thoros were both front and center at the assault on Pike when Ned captured and collected Theon. So as you can see, all of our rescuer figures are affiliated with the Night's Watch or the Starks, either directly or symbolically. Now to clinch Davos as being Stark-affiliated, consider this. Davos's wife's name is Maria, M-A-R-Y-A, which is just Arya with an M in front of it. This may have been done to imply Davos' shadow chaser as marrying a Stark maiden, or marrying into the Stark family, just as Eldritch shadow chaser might have done. And who knows, maybe Arya Stark will end up marrying another Eldric figure, like Ned Dane, when it's all said and done. Wouldn't that be something? Arya is more often linked to a future romance with Gendry, who actually gets stolen other baby honorable mentions since he was a bastard who never knew his father, who was rescued from death by the Night's Watch, and he also has ice-blue eyes. Like Ned Dane, Gendry has joined the Brotherhood Without Banners, who, again, are Night's Watch analogs, and before that... Gendry was grabbed by Yorn as a Night's Watch recruit and smuggled out of King's Landing before he could be killed by Cersei. Maybe we'll talk about Gendry a bit more on the live stream. Anyways, getting back to the last quote, you can see why it makes sense for Davos to be old friends with the Ice Dragon, and why it makes sense to see Davos placed in parallel with the cold, black, frozen stone dragons, with both casting shadows in Nightfires in the same scene. A frozen black dragon that is also a stone would be actually a good way to describe dragonglass, which is, of course, a primary symbol of John and the Eldric archetype. So, too, for the ice dragon symbol, which is heavily associated with John. And here's a little fun fact for you. There are nine times that the phrase ice dragon appears in the five main books, twice in Bran chapters, six times in John chapters, and then this once for Davos. Above all, and as we mentioned at the very beginning, the overarching theme of the Stolen Other turned Stark is the idea of unifying ice and fire, 
and to be more specific, unifying the blood of the other and the blood of the dragon. These ideas are expressed by the symbols of the ice dragon and by dragonglass as frozen fire. And that's basically the context in which we should see this Davos scene. Davos is old friends with the ice dragon and parallels the frozen stone dragons, and he uses fire and black swords to chase the shadows and drive out the cold. There's actually one other appearance of the shadow sword which I haven't mentioned yet, one which happens to be very similar to this Davos scene, actually. It's found at Old Town, where the Hightower's shadow cut the city like a sword. The Hightower sigil is a white tower crowned with flame on a smoke-gray field, and the house words of House Hightower are, We light the way. And yet here is the tower casting a shadow sword. This basically equates the white lighthouse tower with Davos himself. And that actually makes sense. Eldric Shadowchaser is a lightbringer, right? Thinking of the Eldric figure as a white lighthouse makes me think of the possibility of John being reborn with white hair and potentially being animated with ice magic like cold hands, and yet still wielding a black Valyrian steel sword, just as the white high tower lighthouse casts the shadow sword, and just as Davos Shadowchaser casts the shadow sword. This kind of sounds like good other symbolism again a white ice dragon person or tower with a black dragon sword, something that we'll also see when we look at the later part of Jamie Lannister's arc. And, spoiler alert, the latter part of Jamie Lannister's arc basically has him becoming a good other figure. As a matter of fact, there have only been three Kingsguard who ever wielded Valyrian steel swords. Jamie, if only for a moment, in between when Tywin gave him Oathkeeper and when he gave it to Brienne. There's Sir Gawain Corbray, the Kingsguard of King Daron II, who wielded Lady Forlorn, and a fellow known as Aemon the Dragon Knight, who wielded Dark Sister. Not coincidentally, when Jon Snow reminisces over his childhood, when he and Rob would pretend to be great heroes while playfighting, the first name Jon remembers calling out for himself is Aemon the Dragon Knight. Not only does Jon claim Aemon the Dragon Knight, he also grows close to Maester Aemon Targaryen, who tells John that he was named for Aemon the Dragon Knight. And what is Aemon the Dragon Knight but a blood-of-the-dragon hero locked in snow-white armor who wields a black dragon sword? An ice dragon with a black ice sword. And that sounds a lot like John. The other people we know of who wielded Dark Sister are also ice dragon or white dragon figures, Visenya Targaryen and Blood Raven whose sigil is a white dragon breathing red fire on a smoke-gray field, which is actually very similar to the Hightower sigil, now that I think about it. Now, as for Sir Gawain Corbray, the king's guard who wielded Lady Forlorn, well, his symbolism, as it turns out, adds to the picture quite nicely. House Corbray has a great sigil, three black ravens in flight, clutching red hearts on a white field. Three blood ravens locked in ice! Kidding aside, this sigil would seem to be a depiction of the black meteor hearts from the fire moon becoming locked in ice, with the ice being represented by the white field. Even better, House Corbray hails from Hart's home in the icy veil, which reinforces the dragon locked in ice symbolism quite nicely. Now, famously, Gwen Corbray has an incredible duel with Damon Blackfire during the first Blackfire Rebellion, which he narrowly lost only moments before Bloodraven's archers slew Damon Blackfire. I think it's cool that Bloodraven and Gwen Corbray were on the same side, teaming up to defeat Damon Blackfire, since the Corbray sigil implies Bloodraven's locked in ice, and because both fit the mold of a white dragon person or Kingsguard ice armor person with a black sword, which is itself an expression of the dragon locked in ice. 
Finally, Gawain has a green man name. It's a pretty clear call out to Gawain the Green Knight, to be specific. This implies the dragonlock denies as a former green man. And that, of course, is entirely consistent with the dragonlocked and ice figures like John becoming green zombies. And it's also consistent with the extensive green man symbolism present in so many members of the Night's Watch, which is something that we covered in the Sacred Order of the Green Zombies series. It's also consistent with the one-eyed symbolism and the weirwood symbolism that we found in most of our Snowbeard figures, which also implies connections to Garth, the green men, and weirwoods. Now, in terms of this image of a good other in snow-white armor who wields a black sword, I don't think the point is to pick out what exact outfit the last hero actually wore. I mean, if he was smart, he would have worn white just for reasons of camouflage. But that's just me being practical. No, the point is that showing us a white dragon person or snow-armored person with a black sword is probably just another way of depicting the ice and fire, others and dragons unification of all of our eldritch figures. Morris Crowfood, for example, has a white snow beard and a dragonglass eye, which is not exactly the same as Aemon the Dragon Knight's snow white armor and black dragon sword, but it does work much the same way in terms of the eldritch symbolism. Ergo, the white tower crowned with red flame that sprouts a shadow sword like Davos Shadow Chaser can probably be seen as the good other in tower form, lighting the way with a black sword. Appropriately, it's about to be attacked by a Night's King figure, the blue-eyed, moon-faced Euron, him and his other ships. As a side note to the High Tower's shadow cutting the city like a sword, I'll mention that I think we can also interpret the idea of a white tower with a black shadow sword more generally as an expression of the harmonization of opposites. Like Daenerys, the pale-haired Silver Queen with her black shadow, Drogon, or Jon Snow, the man in black, who has a white shadow wolf at his side. Just as Venus is both Morningstar and Evenstar, we've been saying for a long time that Azor Ahai caused the Long Night, and yet, he or his descendants seems to have been out there fighting the others and trying to end it, something like a man trying to clean up either his own mess or that of his father or grandfather. The Black Shadow Night's Watch and the White Shadow Others may represent two sides of some sort of split that must be reconciled, and this rescued other baby turned Stark is probably the man for the job. That certainly seems like John's role, and it fits with the idea of John being the song of ice and fire, and also with John's Mithras symbolism, which is usually taken to imply a certain amount of deal-making or brokering of packs. And that is what I make of this scene with Davos mooning over the ice dragon while using fire to chase the chilly shadows and wielding a shadow sword. Now, returning to the theme of Eldric being an inherited title... It seems more than coincidental that Davos's son, Devon, does something very similar to his father's shadow chasing in Melisandre's POV chapter from A Dance with Dragons. Devon fed fresh logs to the fire until the flames leapt up again, fierce and furious, driving the shadows back into the corners of the room, devouring all her unwanted dreams. The dark recedes again for a little while. But beyond the wall, the enemy grows stronger, and should he win, the dawn will never come again. She wondered if it had been his face that she had seen staring out at her from the flames. No, surely not. His visage would be more frightening than that, cold and black and too terrible for any man to gaze upon and live. The wooden man she had glimpsed, though, and the boy with the wolf's face... 
They were his servants, surely, his champions, as Stannis was hers. Melisandre went to her window, pushed open the shutters. Outside, the east had just begun to lighten, and the stars of morning still hung in a pitch-black sky. These two scenes, this one here and Davos's scene, Chasing the Shadows, have a lot of resonance, not only because of the shadow chasing, but because of the similar context of both scenes. Here's what I mean. On one hand, we have Melisandre's thoughts here about the war for the dawn and the champions of light and dark, including Jon Snow. And on the other hand, we have Davos's scene, where he does the eldritch smuggling routine and then participates in a conversation with Stannis and Mel about the prince that was promised and standing against the great other, a conversation which is ended by Stannis drawing Lightbringer. In both scenes, there is also celestial observation with significant symbolism. Mel sees the stars of morning, while Davos regards the ice dragon and other northern constellations fondly. Even the locations of the two scenes, Dragonstone and Castle Black, compare well as Blackstone castles, which are currently under the control of Stannis when both of these scenes occur. Better yet, at the end of the Davos Shadow Chaser scene from A Storm of Swords, Davos reads the letter from the Night's Watch about the Fist of the First Men and the Others, and advises Stannis, with Melisandre's support actually, that the best way to be king was to do his duty of protecting the realm and head north. That leads to Stannis coming to Castle Black and then helping Jon prepare the Watch to chase the White Shadows, whereupon Davos' son does his own Shadow Chaser routine. In other words, the two scenes are linked not only by symbolism and by the father and son present in both scenes, but because one scene leads directly to the other. And yes, technically, Devon was driving the shadows into their corners instead of chasing the shadows, but I think it's close enough, given that there are so many matching elements between the two scenes, and given that the into-the-corners language is identical in both. Besides, when Davos chased the shadows, it also said that he lit the fire to drive the chill from the room. Eldrick Shadow Chaser, Eldrick Shadow Driver, I mean, what's the difference, right? Consider that line about devouring Melisandre's unwanted dreams. The very dragon-like fire, which leaps up, fierce and furious, to drive the shadows into the corners, also devours Mel's unwanted dreams. In this same chapter, only moments before these lines, Mel thinks to herself that sleep is a little death, dreams the whisperings of the other, who would drag us all into his eternal night. So, Devon's fire is driving the shadows away and, in Melisandre's mind, devouring the whisperings of the Great Other. That's useful for identifying what kind of shadows are being driven away here, since we have many types of shadows in the world of George Martin's twisted imagination. Shadows which are the whisperings of the Other would clearly be other shadows, the White Shadows. So, to sum up, we get two similar scenes, with father and son doing the Eldrick Shadow Chaser routine, lighting fires and chasing or driving the shadows back into their corners. Both scenes are set against a meaningful, symbolic backdrop of celestial observation and discussion of Azor Ahai and fighting the others. Said another way, Davos rescues an Eldrick Shadow Chaser character in Edric Storm, then plays the Eldrick Shadow Chaser role himself, then later his son also plays the Eldrick role. So, like I said... Eldrick Shadow Chaser could be a title that's passed down, or it could simply be a matter of father and son repeating the same symbolism. As with John and Rhaegar both repeating the Dark Solar King with two wives thing, Garth the Green naming his firstborn son Garth Gardner, and every Stark in the Age of Heroes being named Brandon, and so on. Similarly, it's starting to seem more and more like the last hero was probably the son of Night's King, but characters like John and Waymar 
show us both Night's King and Last Hero symbolism. Night's King might be a Zorahai, but he could also be a Zorahai's son, as I've said. And obviously, people like John, Stannis, and Euron combine a Zorahai symbolism and Night's King symbolism. It's almost like a Zorahai, Night's King, and the Last Hero can be regarded as three phases in a cycle. This cycle could be acted out by one person going through all three phases, or by three generations of the same bloodline occupying the various phases, and it works very well either way. That's why I always hesitate to try to pin down the specifics too much. Sorry, Unchained. Maybe one day we'll get there. Nevertheless, it's not really a problem where it concerns our icy origin of House Stark hypothesis. We've seen enough children of Night's King and Queen figures taken from their parents and raised by someone else that we know it's something that happened, regardless of how many generations there were between Azor Ahai and Night's King, and regardless of whether the last hero should be regarded as the rescued other baby or the rescuer. If we keep the focus on the escaped Night's Queen baby archetype as we sift through all these examples of this figure looking for commonalities, things will sort themselves out. Now, you may be scoffing at how quickly I labeled humble Davos as an Azor Ahai reborn figure. Was that just for convenience, since I wanted to make a point about shadow chasing? Well, it's a valid question, and while Davos and Devon aren't the main incarnations of Azor Ahai or his son, they do have familiar symbolic flag markers to help us identify the role that they're playing. Davos, for example, has the shadow sword, of course, and more importantly, he undergoes a fiery death and rebirth at the Battle of the Blackwater, with plenty of smoke and salt around. We can't break down the entire Battle of the Blackwater right now, but the operative line actually comes after the fact, when Davos is reflecting on all the people who died there. Of the dead, he thinks, Drowned or burned, with my sons and a thousand others, gone to make a king in hell. That quote is matched by the flaming chain turning the mouth of the Blackwater into the mouth of hell at the actual battle. A mouth of hell that Davos enters and passes through. We've already seen that the drowned men of the Ironborn symbolize others, and here a thousand others are drowned or burned to make a king in hell, who can only be Azor High in his Dark Lord form, or Night's King himself, which is more or less the same thing. I think this is another line about the creation of the others being tied to Azor High, and the idea of burning men turning into others seems like more symbolism about the blood of the dragon giving rise to the others. Most importantly, Davos goes into the mouth of hell and does indeed drown, only to come back from the dead in a manner of speaking. And when he does come back from the dead, he returns to Dragonstone, chases the shadows, and rescues Edric Storm. And then later in A Dance with Dragons, he turns up in Sisterton, sporting a last hero's dozen. My lord, said the captain, we found this man in the belly of the whale. Trying to buy his way off island, he had twelve dragons on him. Davos brought twelve dragons with him. That's the last hero's mission right there if I've ever seen one. And indeed, the next place he goes after Sisterton is White Harbor, which is a clear ice moon symbol. And I'd think the idea of being in the belly of the whale, an allusion to the biblical story of Jonah, is probably analogous to being locked in the ice moon as well. And that means that, yes, Davos' imprisonment at White Harbor depicts Davos becoming the dragon locked in ice. That will actually be the topic of our final section, Davos' imprisonment in the wolf's den. Oh, that's going to be good. Now, in the course of the last two episodes, we mentioned every single named Sword of the Morning, except one. And bonus points if you've been calling this out already. It's Sir Davos Dane, of course, 
the sword of the morning, who married a princess Nymeria. Princess Nymeria sent Vorian Dane, the sword of the evening, to the wall, and right after, she married Davos Dane, the sword of the morning, whom we can assume was related to Vorian, and maybe could have even been a brother or son, or nephew, who knows. So, for what it's worth, we can say that Davos Seaworth married Maria, and Davos Dane married Nymeria, while Arya Stark has a wolf named Nymeria, and will one day marry Edric Dane. I promised someone a very G-rated Arya and Ned Dane ship, so there you go. Now, most importantly, I think it's safe to say that George deciding to stick a Davos Dane in the world of Ice and Fire is done to enhance Davos Seaworth's Eldric Shadow Chaser symbolism, just as he's hidden all these excellent Snowbeard figures in the books to help add to the larger Eldric archetype. It's almost like making Davos an honorary Dane, a nice counterpoint to his honorary Stark and honorary Night's Watch symbolism. There's one other Davos in a song of Ice and Fire history, and that's a legendary figure from the Age of Heroes known as Davos Dragonslayer. I'm not quite sure what to make of that, since Davos seems to be on Team Dragon and Team Ice Dragon, and dead set against the others. Perhaps this is George simply reminding us of the eternal cycle of morning and evening sword symbolism, similar to how Starks and Danes both have morning sword and evening sword symbolism. I've even wildly speculated that Dawn is a dragon-killer sword, just as Valyrian steel kills others, which could fit with the idea of Davos Dane, the Sword of the Morning. I am not, however, predicting Davos killing Viserion with Dawn, so don't put those words in my mouth. Perhaps the most heroic aspect of Davos's character is found in his inner monologue. I'm referring to how, after hearing the legend of the forging of Lightbringer in the heart of Nissa Nissa, Davos thinks to himself that, he would never be able to kill his wife for any reason, just like me and you and every other sane person in the world. A true hero. And I'm actually not kidding here. This, this is what I call the Azor High test. George has given us this fable of Azor High, which presents him as a hero, but shows him murdering his wife and working blood magic. And I see this as kind of a test of our morality. Can he convince us to give up our morality and start to rationalize the idea of killing your wife to work blood magic? I don't think you're supposed to, and Davos passes the test here. As for Devin's identifying symbolism, well, besides being Mel's hearth boy, he's the guy who picks up Lightbringer after Stannis draws it from the fire on Dragonstone and then plants it in the sand, as I mentioned way back in Moons of Ice and Fire 2. It was actually Devin and Brian Faring who picked up Lightbringer, and if you recall, House Faring has that sigil with a purple swordsman on white and a white swordsman on purple combatant which is basically a purple and white yin-yang symbol with knights and swords that reminds us a lot of House Dane and of the idea of two magic lightbringer swords, as well as Venus symbolism in general. The Seaworth sigil, on the other hand, has a ship with black sails and a white onion, which looks like a moon, and this also expresses some sort of harmony of opposite symbolism, I would say. My analysis of all this is that Devon and Brian Faring are playing the last hero role, claiming the sword of Azor High, as it were, almost like Ned Dane squiring for Beric, and I think the harmony of opposites-type symbolism that Devin and Brian are showing us would refer to ice and fire. That's kind of the theme of this figure, after all, frozen fire, a harmonization of ice and fire. To this end, Brian Faring meets his end via succumbing to the cold and hunger, with his corpse subsequently being burnt. Frozen, and then burnt. Perhaps meant as more ice and fire symbolism similar to Edric Storm and Edric Dane catching a chill and a fever at the same time. 
There's another frozen fire slash dragon locked in ice clue at the burning of the seven scene with Devin and Brian Faring. And that would be the new sigil that they wear on their doublets. And this is Davos observing his son Devin in A Clash of Kings. The boy wore a cream-coloured doublet with a fiery heart sewn on the breast. Brian Faring was similarly garbed as he tied a stiff leather cape around his grace's neck. Cream is a moon colour. Think of the Aaron sigil with its cream-coloured moon. So the cream-coloured doublets with fiery hearts on the breast is kind of like a fiery heart locked inside a moon. It's very similar to the new Karstark sigil that Sigorn of Thin takes on when he marries Alice Karstark. That was a red and copper sunburst on a snow-white field. We also interpreted that as a dragon-locked and ice symbol because Alice is playing a great Winter Queen role in that scene and because we had a ton of turning fire cold symbolism there. All of the rescued Night's Queen babies have dragon-locked and ice symbolism because they all represent the seed of Night's King, which was given to Night's Queen, who's like the ice moon. So it makes sense to see Brian and Davos, who are squires and or children of Azor High figures, decked out in dragon-locked and ice outfits, as we do. It's much the same with that Corbray, three blood ravens locked in ice sigil. I think we should be imagining the black ravens as carrying the fiery heart of Valor, which makes sense as they seem meant as meteor symbols. The ravens carrying hearts also remind us of the Night's Watch, both because ravens and crows are cousins, and because of the fact that they are blood ravens, and blood raven was a lord commander of the Night's Watch. Thinking about bloody and fiery hearts locked in ice in the context of the Night's Watch, of course, puts us in mind of Mel speaking of needing men whose hearts are fire to fight the others, meaning the Night's Watch, and, of course, the Night's Watch themselves are like burning scarecrows locked in the ice of the wall. Even more relevant to the point of this essay is Davos's imprisonment in the Wolf's Den at White Harbor, which is basically a five-alarm dragon-locked-in-ice fire. The Wolf's Den. This final section is brought to you by three more of our stellar Zodiac patrons. Werlaine Dervish, Woods Witch of the Wolf's Wood, Earthly Avatar of Celestial House Scorpio, Direlis, the Alpha Patron, a descendant of Gilbert of the Vines and Garth the Green, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Aquarius, and Lord Leobold the Victorious, the Fire Lion of Lancasterly Rock, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Leo. While every Ice Moon city and fortress has some sort of representation of the dragon locked in ice symbolism, White Harbor really is about as good as it gets. We know that it has whitewashed stone buildings, a domed sept called the Sept of the Snows, a river called the White Knife, white marble mermaids, and so on, all of which is great ice and snow symbolism. As the Lord of White Harbor, Wyman Manderley's titles include Warden of the White Knife, a loaded phrase if there ever was one. But locked away in the heart of the old city is a little old place called the Wolf's Den, an old fortress made of black stone which predates the rest of the city. In other words, the black stone Wolf's Den was enveloped by the white stone of White Harbor as the city grew, becoming locked in White Harbor, I guess. Since then, the Wolf's Den has become a prison. So not only is it locked in ice, it also locks things inside it. Dragon-locked-in-ice figures, like Davos, for example. We've seen a lot of prisons used this way, such as the Sky Cells of the Eyrie, the Cells in the Sept of Baelor, Mance Radar's Cold Cage, the Ice Cells in the Wall where John's body may be stored, and so on. 
The wolf's den, however, takes the cake as far as Ice Moon prisons go. Now, before Davos is thrown in the wolf's den, he's threatened with being thrown in the wolf's den. The pink woman pointed a plump finger down at Davos. We want no part of any treason, you. We are good people in White Harbour, lawful, loyal people. Pour no more poison in our ears, or my good father will send you down to the wolf's den. White Harbour is an ice moon symbol, so pouring poison into it is akin to Euron pouring dark shade of the evening poison into his blue-eyed moon face, something we considered in Moons of Ice and Fire 4, the long night was his to rule. That poison darkness flowing into Euron's ice moon face represents the darkness of the fire moon meteors entering the ice moon, of course. And this, I believe, is the reason why drinking shade of the evening is like having fingers of fire coiling around your heart, as well as tasting like hot blood and molten gold. It's a fiery drink going in, but it turns your lips blue, making you look frozen. And if you keep drinking it long enough, you end up a cold blue shadow like the undying. In the Bloodstone Compendium, we saw that those black moon meteors show many signs of being toxic or poisonous where they hit the earth, or the ice moon. Kind of like a snake bite or a kiss from a poisonous flower. Davos's poisoning of White Harbor depicts the dragon being locked in ice, and for that crime, he's threatened with and then served up imprisonment in the wolf's den, the act of which is locking a dragon in ice, and the wolf's den itself is a dragon locked in ice symbol. So much like the cat's paw's blade biting cat's paw, with cat biting the cat's paw's paw right back, we've got some sort of demented Russian doll trick of symbolism happening. It's not really that confusing, though, because it's really just redundant symbolism. Now, as for that wolf's den, well, it's made of black stone, like I said, and the first thing that jumps off the page when you get to this part of the chapter is that the wolf's den has a jailer named Garth. He even has two wives, after a fashion. Once, Garth brought his ladies by to introduce them to the dead man. The whore don't look like much, he said, fondling a rod of cold black iron. But when I heat her up red hot and let her touch your cock, you'll cry for mother. And this here's my Lady Lou. It's her who'll take your head and hands when Lord Wyman sends down word. Davos had never seen a bigger axe than Lady Lou, nor one with a sharper edge. Garth spent his days honing her, the other keepers said. The black iron, which can be red hot, the whore, would represent Garth's fire moon lady, of course. It's not much to look at anymore because it isn't in the sky. And Lady Lou, the huge axe, is spoken of by the other keepers. And Garth spends his days honing her, implying her as being daytime and light associated. An axe of the morning, if you will. This Garth is a Garth with moon wives of ice and fire. And as we'll see in a moment, he's quite the interesting fellow. I know I say that a lot, but, you know, those are the characters I try to talk about, the ones with interesting symbolism. Now, I've mentioned a few times that I'm saving most of the Weirwood-related symbolism of the Others and the Ice Moon for later, so that these essays don't go in seven directions at once. But if you've listened to any of the Weirwood Compendium episodes, you know that a fishing weir is some sort of wooden structure, kind of like a dam, built over a river which is designed to trap fish. So it's something like a wooden prison. And also that a fishing weir can be called a fish garth. The word garth, in turn, can also refer to a private enclosed garden, very like a godswood. And that leads us back to wooden prisons, the weirwoods. We found a whole line of symbolism about garth traps and weirwoods, and of course, weirwoods and moons are used to symbolize one another as well. So 
You may be able to see already what's happening here with Garth being a jailer inside the Ice Moon. Being locked in the Ice Moon prison is more or less synonymous with being inside the Weirwood Net, or perhaps some part of the Weirwood Net if there are multiple parts. That's why we find White Harbor's Godswood inside the Wolf's Den with a jailer named Garth. If that doesn't immediately make sense, don't worry. We'll be coming back to the Wolf's Den for all the Greenseer stuff at a later time. And don't forget the Manderleys still consider themselves Knights of the Green Hand, so you know there is some green man symbolism going on here. The basic idea is that the Weirwoods are prisons or traps for Greenseers, who are like Garth people. Once they have a Garth inside them, they are Garth trees as well, making Garth both the jailer and the prisoner. Now, as it turns out, although Davos is actually the sole prisoner in the Wolf's Den, Garth is not the only jailer. He knew there were true dungeons down in the castle cellars, oubliettes and torture chambers and dank pits where huge black rats scrabbled in the darkness. His jailers claimed all of them were unoccupied at present. Only us here, Runyon, Sir Bartimus had told him. He was the chief jailer, a cadaverous, one-legged knight with a scarred face and a blind eye. When Sir Bartimus was in his cups, and Sir Bartimus was in his cups most every day, he liked to boast of how he had saved Lord Wyman's life at the Battle of the Trident. The wolf's den was his reward. The rest of us consisted of a cook Davos never saw, six guardsmen on the ground floor barracks, a pair of washerwomen, and the two turnkeys who looked after the prisoner. Theri was the young one, the son of one of the washerwomen, a boy of ten and four. The old one was Garth, huge and bald and taciturn, who wore the same greasy leather jerkin every day, and always seemed to have a glower on his face. His years as a smuggler had given Davos Seaworth a sense of when a man was wrong, and Garth was wrong. The Onion Knight took care to hold his tongue in Garth's presence. Heyo! It's a one-eyed cadaverous fellow named Bartimus. I've said before that Barthagen Stark, a.k.a. Barth Blacksword, is kind of like an evil Garth, something like a frozen northern Garth with a black sword. Well, here at the Wolf's Den, we have a real evil Garth. Call him Garth the Wrong, whose cohort is another Barth, Bartimus One-Eye. Another thing we can't fail to notice is the last hero math. There's Bartimus, the chief jailer, and the cook we don't see, one, two. Then six guardsmen to make eight total. Then two washerwomen, nine, ten. And two turnkeys, eleven, twelve, of which Garth is the old one. That makes twelve, and Davos is the thirteenth man, the last hero figure. Davos Shadow Chaser. Recall that he started this mission with twelve golden dragons, which is more great last hero math, and with dragon symbolism, as befits team last hero. Now, the reason we can group Davos with the twelve people that live at the Wolf's Den is just that, because they live at the Wolf's Den. So even though they serve as the staff that holds Davos prisoner, they can also be regarded as being locked in the wolf's den along with Davos because of the simple fact that they live there full time. It's very akin to the idea of Garth being both the prisoner and the jailer inside the Weirwood Net. In fact, that's exactly what it's like. The symbolism of this is powerful. Davos and the dozen residents of the wolf's den are like a last hero group of 13 waiting to be reborn as green zombies to fight the others. Following behind Davos' shadow chaser, we'd have a nasty undead Garth figure and a cadaverous one-eyed Bartimus, at the very least. 
Both of those sound like fantastic green zombies. It may be appropriate to think of the dozen golden dragons Davos set out with as the living companions of the last hero, which are now represented by twelve haggard, wrong, or cadaverous people living inside the wolf's den. Now, it's not just one-eyed Bartimus who is cadaverous. The Onion Knight had not forgotten Wyman Mandley's last words to him. Take this creature to the wolf's den and cut off his head and hands, the fat lord had commanded. I shall not be able to eat a bite until I see this smuggler's head upon a spike with an onion shoved between his lying teeth. Every night Davos went to sleep with those words in his head, and every morn he woke to them. And should he forget, Garth was always pleased to remind him. Dead Man was his name for Davos. When he came by in the morning, it was always, Here, porridge for the dead man. At night, it was, Blow out the candle, dead man. It continues all through the chapter. The food had come as a surprise as well. In place of gruel and stale bread and rotten meat, the usual dungeon fare, his keepers brought him fresh-caught fish, bread still warm from the oven, spiced mutton, turnips, carrots, even crabs. Garth was none too pleased by that. The dead should not eat better than the living, he complained more than once. And then later, when Robert Glover comes to escort Davos secretly back to the palace to talk to Wyman, he's told that, it would not do for you to be seen, my lord. You are supposed to be dead. To which Davos thinks to himself, porridge for the dead man. The meaning is obvious, and I've been alluding to it already. The dragon being locked in ice and eventually reborn from it constitutes a death and rebirth transformation sequence. The dragon locked in ice can be considered dead, on ice, if you will, and this correlates to John's death, where he never felt the fourth knife, only the cold, with his body likely to be stored in the ice cells of the wall which of course represents the ice moon. It's an echo of John being in Leanna's womb because he's preparing to be reborn. Now it may go without saying, but a place called the Wolf's Den works pretty well as an analog to the place where John's spirit resides while he's temporarily dead. And here's the great thing. Bartimus, the one-eyed jailer, who's much friendlier than Garth the Wrong, tells Davos who built the Wolf's Den. It was some guy named King John Stark. That's King in the North, John Stark, to you, sir. I kid, but it's no joke. The only John Stark in history is a King in the North who built a Blackstone fortress to protect the White Knife from sea raiders and named it the Wolf's Den. That's just highly appropriate, since the Wolf's Den is a tremendous dragon locked in ice symbol, and John epitomizes the dragon locked in ice, which is also the stolen other baby shadow chaser archetype, of course. Thus, Davos' shadow chaser being imprisoned in the wolf's den, built by John Stark, is basically equivalent to John being temporarily dead, with his body again probably stored in an ice cell in the wall and his spirit stored in his white wolf. I think this again implies that the stolen other baby does indeed undergo some kind of transformation, death and rebirth experience, almost certainly as a green zombie night's watchman, I would guess. Presumably as the last hero himself, right? John is about to become a green zombie, a resurrected skin changer after all, and I have already hypothesized that the original last hero became a green zombie by following an entirely different line of symbolism, or many other lines of symbolism, I guess you could say. Davos won't actually be killed and resurrected, but that's the obvious implication of all this porridge for the dead man symbolism. Wyman actually does pretend to kill Davos, executing a common prisoner and then passing them off as Davos, 
which again implies Davos as dying here, only to be quote-unquote resurrected and then sent on a new rescuer mission to save Rickon Stark. Wyman Manderley's final words to Davos concerning the manner of his execution actually make mock of his sigil. Take this creature to the wolf's den and cut off his head and hands, and then I shall not be able to eat another bite until I see this smuggler's head upon a spike with an onion shoved between his lying teeth. That brings us back to the topic of Davos' sigil, which we touched on already. A black ship on a gray field with a white onion on its sail. Very yin and yang, right? We saw that Euron's mostly black ship the decks are painted red, was a burnt firemoon symbol, and I'm inclined to view Davos's black ship that way too, with the white onion on its sails representing a whole moon, likely the firemoon before impact, I think, though I'm not certain of that. Think about this. The black ship carries the white onions. If the single onion on the sail represents a moon, then a bunch of small onions would be a bunch of pieces of moon. This interpretation is enhanced by the moonless night that Davos used to smuggle the onions to Stannis. Then came a night when the moon was new, and black clouds hid the stars. Cloaked in that darkness, Davos the smuggler had dared the red wine cordon and the rocks of Shipbreaker Bay alike. His little ship had a black hull, black sails, black oars, and a hold crammed with onions and salt fish. A new moon is the night when no moon is visible. So, this is a moonless night. And look, the clouds are hiding the stars. That implies the night when the moon came out of the sky and became pieces of moon, which Davos carries on his ship. And later he retraces the same steps and carries Melisandre, a fire moon maiden, on his ship as well. It's actually the white cliff face that Davos rose into and the cave inside that represents the ice moon. Davos is essentially smuggling fire moon things into the ice moon, so to speak. So, getting back to the symbol of the onion, when Wyman orders Davos's head mounted on a spike with a moon onion shoved in his mouth, he's actually combining two symbols. First, it speaks of Davos consuming the fire of the gods and undergoing death transformation, because the moon meteors signify the fire of the gods and Davos's severed head would be consuming it. We saw a very similar symbolism with the men hung on trees in the riverlands who had chunks of salt stuck in their mouth. The hanging is an Odin metaphor for death transcendence as they consume the fire of the gods, which would be the lunar chunks of white salt. Secondly, the head on a spike symbol is a good representation for a moon meteor with a smoke trail. We've seen that a few times, notably with the eyeless heads of the three Night's Watch brothers impaled on ashwood spears that John finds north of the wall, which are also moon meteor symbols that doubled as metaphors for Night's Watchmen undergoing death transformation and entering the weirwood net and recall that one of them was Garth Greyfeather, just as Garth the Wrong now inhabits the wolf's den. Now when Jon Snow comes back to life, he'll be the walking dead, and this is what Davos is after he's led out of the wolf's den to begin working in alliance with Wyman Manderley in secret. This is Wyman talking to Davos at the end of the chapter. Lord Davos, you will not know, but you are dead. Robert Glover filled a wine cup and offered it to Davos. He took it, sniffed it, drank. How did I die, if I may ask? By the axe. Your head and hands were mounted above the seal gate, with your face turned so your eyes looked out across the harbour. By now you are well rotted, though we dipped your head in tar before we set it on the spike. Carrion crows and seabirds squabbled over your eyes, they say. Davos shifted uncomfortably. 
It was a queer feeling being dead. Head dipped in tar. Davos Shadow Chaser is now Yin Tar, another one of the five names for the great flaming sword hero. Well, perhaps. In any case, having been reborn from the wolf's den, Davos Shadow Chaser is now like the walking dead, again like John will be. And what is he sent to go do by Wyman? Why, to go rescue a Stark boy, of course. The dragon locked in the ice moon is kind of like a sleeping hero, and here Davos is being woken from his version of the prison inside the ice moon to go play the hero, just as John will be resurrected from the ice cells of the wall to play the hero. Davos is being sent to Skagos, of course, an island full of wildling-like people who are reputed cannibals. Here's what the world of ice and fire has to say about Skagos. Skagos has often been a source of trouble for the Starks, both as kings when they sought to conquer it, and as lords when they fought to keep its fealty. Indeed, as recently as the reign of King Deiron II Targaryen, Deiron the Good, the Isle rose up against the lords of Winterfell, a rebellion that lasted years and claimed the lives of thousands of others, including that of Barthagon Stark, Lord of Winterfell, called Barth Blacksword, before finally being put down. Uh-huh, I see. Barth Blacksword and thousands of others dying in a great war, huh? I think we know which war that was. This line reminds me of Davos talking about all the men at the Blackwater who were drowned or burned with my sons and a thousand others gone to make a king in hell. We'll just have to see what kind of symbolism pops up on Skagos when Davos goes there. The word skag means stoneborn, so they are ripe for moon meteor symbolism of some kind, that's for sure. And they have unicorn goats. Also, you know I love that Barth Blacksword keeps turning up. Obviously, that's one of my favorite Starks. He kind of sounds like the last hero here, dying in a valiant fight against the others, only to be symbolically resurrected here at the Wolf's Den in the form of the cadaverous Bartimus One-Eye, whose symbolism implies him as an undead Barth who's attained the wisdom of the gods via the One-Eye Odin symbolism. So that's White Harbor and the Wolf's Den for you. It's a pretty amazing dragon-locked and ice symbol in its own right, and Davos builds on this symbolism by becoming a dead man and being imprisoned there. Most importantly, all of this symbolism is parallel to John, his body growing cold and dead as his spirit wanders the bardo, waiting for rebirth. After all, what is a wolf's den but a place where wolves go to sleep? The ultimate wolf's den is, of course, Winterfell. And that's where we're going to go next. In the next episode, that is. I did mention that Edric Dane was named for Eddard Stark, right? That means we've got to consider the symbolism of Lord Eddard himself. Clearly, it's far too late in the podcast to bring up a topic like the Ned, so you can expect the next episode to be packed with Ned Stark and Winterfell analysis. Plus, we'll broach a topic I've been waiting a long time to broach, the impending Ice Moon Disaster, a.k.a. the beginning of the end. Or if your typing is sloppy, it's the beginning of the Ned. section is brought to you by all the anonymous supporters of mythical astronomy for they are the blackness between the stars the cosmic womb tomb of eternity
Now, back at the Wolf's Den, our friend Sir Bartimus actually has a bit more stark history for us, and it's one of the cooler backstories of any place I've come across in A Song of Ice and Fire. Best of all, it features our buddy King Edric Snowbeard and his great-grandson Brandon Ice Eyes Stark. I'm actually going to do something I haven't done before, which is that I'm going to read you an awesome symbolic passage, and I mean it's just flat-out fantastic. But I'm not going to tell you immediately what I think it means. At least, not exactly. As a matter of fact, this is one of those passages that can be read from one of two opposite ways, and I'm honestly not sure which side of the fence I fall on. I'm going to leave you with this and some basic analysis, and then we'll talk about it further on the live stream that will take place on Saturday, one week following the release of this episode. And of course, that's going to be 3 o'clock Eastern on the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel. All right, now, here is the quote. When old King Edric Stark had grown too feeble to defend his realm, the wolf's den was captured by slavers from the Stepstones. They would brand their captives with hot irons and break them to the whip before shipping them off across the sea, and these same Blackstone walls bore witness. Then a long, cruel winter fell, said Sir Bartimus. The white knife froze hard, and even the firth was icing up. The winds came howling from the north and drove them slavers inside to huddle round their fires, and whilst they warmed themselves, the new king came down on them. Brandon Stark, this was, Edric Snowbeard's great-grandson, him that men call Ice Eyes. He took the wolf's den back, stripped the slavers naked, and gave them to the slaves he'd found chained up in the dungeons. It said they hung their entrails in the branches of the heart tree as an offering to the gods. The old gods, not these new ones from the south. Your seven don't know winter, and winter don't know them. There's our buddy Edric Snowbeard again, losing the black stone of the wolf's den to raiders from the Stepstones, which means they probably came from Bloodstone Island, surely, at least some of them. Those would be the pirates and slavers, like the pirates from Ashai, led by the Bloodstone Emperor, and they're capturing the wolf's den. Sounds like the Night's King coming into power. We can certainly think of the whites as slaves, and those that raised them as slavers. Appropriately, during a cruel winter with cold winds howling from the north, the white knife froze solid, meaning that a frozen white sword has appeared with the cold winds and the cruel winter, which I can only interpret as a reference to dawn being the original ice and having some sort of icy origin in the events of the long night. And along with these cruel winds of winter and the frozen white knife comes a terrible fellow named Brandon Ice Eyes Stark to recapture the wolf's den for the Starks and restore traditional northern sacrifice to the old gods. Now, like I said, there are really two ways that you could interpret this. At first, you might read this as Brandon Ice Eyes being like the last hero, wielding Dawn, the frozen white knife, and winning a big battle during the long night for Team Stark. We think that the escaped other baby can wield ice magic, so... Someone with ice eyes coming with the cold winds at their back and wielding a frozen white sword doesn't necessarily have to be on Team Others. So maybe that's it. Brandon Ice Eyes is the last hero, and the slavers are the others. However, it almost makes more sense to interpret it in the opposite way. Brandon Ice Eyes comes down from the north with the cold, cruel winds of winter at his back and kills a bunch of people. So maybe he's Night's King and his armies represent the others. After all, the name of Night's King was, mayhaps, Brandon Stark, 
A Night's King most certainly could be described as having ice eyes, having undergone cold transformation himself. I'm also increasingly in favor of Night's King wielding or even forging Dawn, as Brandon Ice Eyes is implied to here since he attacked when the White Knife froze hard. We could look at this and see that Night's King Brandon Ice Eyes comes down with his Winds of Winter and Icy White Sword and kills people who like to live in Blackstone fortresses, much like the castles of the Night's Watch. These people huddling around the fires in the Blackstone Fortress come from Bloodstone Island, which implies them as dragon lords affiliated with the Bloodstone Emperor and Azor High, which could be a match for the fire dragon symbolism of the Night's Watch. Davos's last Heroes dozen were originally golden dragons, which then sort of symbolically transformed into the twelve residents of the Wolf's Den, so it's not hard to see the slavers in the Wolf's Den as being parallel to the last Heroes dozen, the original Night's Watch. The slavers both lived in the Wolf's Den and kept people prisoner there, just like the twelve residents of the Wolf's Den in Davos's day both live there and hold people prisoner there. I know I said the others are like slavers, but then again, so was the Bloodstone Emperor who enslaved his people. The Night's Watch can be viewed as slaves themselves, since they are bound to the wall and deprived of most freedoms. So if that's the case, when these Bloodstone slavers are hung from trees, well... That simply represents Azor High dying and going into the Weirwood Net, as we think he does. The same thing is implied by fake Davos being hung from the walls of White Harbor when he enters the Wolf's Den. This could also correlate to the first death of the last hero, as I've speculated that in fact, he and his twelve dead companions were raised as zombies before they could successfully confront the others. They may well have been deliberately and ritually sacrificed in front of heart trees as part of the green zombie process. So imagine the slavers from Bloodstone Island who were hung on trees as sacrificed Night's Watchmen going into the Weirwood Net, but then being resurrected as green zombies, as represented by the dozen people in the Wolf's Den with Davos. Most people in the Night's Watch were sent there as punishment for their crimes, after all, just as the slavers were punished by being sacrificed to the Heart Tree. So, is Brandon Ice Eyes the last hero or the Night's King? Similarly, what sword did Night's King wield, the white or the black one? And the same question applies to the last hero. Was Dragonsteel a white or a black sword? I have more evidence to offer for either side, and I do love leaving things up for debate. So, take a look at this passage again, and think about it, and then at the live stream, we'll discuss it a bit further. Naturally, I would be thrilled if you would like to leave a comment and let me know what you think about those questions, and you can do that on WordPress, on YouTube, on Twitter, or on Patreon. I have to say, I'm really looking forward to our Ned Stark and Winterfell episode, and I'm really looking forward to finally unleashing some Ice Moon disaster prophecy symbolism on you guys. And you know I'm looking forward to having Robert from Indeep Geek on our live stream, and so once again, I will leave you with that time. It's going to be on Saturday, April 7th, at 3 o'clock Eastern, 12 o'clock Pacific, and 8 o'clock London time, on the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel. See you there, everyone. When you need- 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.